welcome everyone to episode 12 of Real Bad, the Breaking Bad podcast of the Real World Podcast Network. And today, we are going to be talking season 5 of Better Call Saul. I am your host, Kevin Ford. I am enjoying Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul through for the second time. And joining me, the other host, Jerome Cusan, is enjoying it for the very first time. Jerome, this is my last podcast for 2020, our last one together. And I just want to say good riddance to 2020 and uh, wish you an early Happy New Year. Uh, what is the gift that you sent me earlier this week? I know we were referencing something else, but I think it is also appropriate for the end of 2020 as well. It was the gift of Homer literally burning a bridge. Homer Simpson, that is. So that also keeps up the running gag of having a Simpsons reference on every episode of this uh, of this year podcast. And it's something that I think uh, I'm hopeful that we can continue doing in the year 2021 as well. If you can believe it, Kevin, we started this podcast just before the pandemic started. And we are now nine months into the pandemic, and we are ending with a season that actually aired during the pandemic. It sure did. Yeah, well, we can talk about 2020 TV a little bit at the end here, but this is going to be my last podcast for 2020, but I know you have something special coming out next week. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, I think it's actually going to come out the same week. I'm not sure how the days are going to work, but uh, Brian and I are doing a podcast about the 2000. 19 television series of the Watchmen. Uh, We are determining whether that should be in the superhero pantheon or not. Uh, So you should go ahead and go listen to that either today or tomorrow, whenever it comes out. Also attached to that review is our discussion of wonder woman, 1984, which is coming out in theaters. Hopefully you did not see it in theaters. If you are, if you are an American and you went to a theater, you are a monster. Uh, If you are in certain international territories, then congratulations, your country did not mess up the pandemic, and you should reward yourself by seeing Wonder Woman in theaters. But otherwise, you should be watching it on HBO Max, as Brian and I are doing. We're talking Better Call Saul here. Now, full disclosure, it's been a long time since you and I have talked to Better Call Saul Season 4, although on the website it's not presented that way. So I rewatched the final episode of season four and did a little bit of previously on just to remind myself, maybe yourself and some of the listeners of where we left off in season four. When we left, Jimmy had successfully been reinstated as a lawyer, but requested a DBA or doing business as, as he will not be operating his business under his legal name of Jimmy McGill. It's all good, man. Kim became a partner in the Schweikert and Coakley law firm after bringing Mesa Verde to them as a new client. Not only is this a major career milestone for Kim, but it also makes her professionally unavailable to partner with Jimmy. As you may remember, that is something that he had in mind when uh, when Kim was on her own again. Uh, construction of the Super Lab has begun, done by a group of German labor workers under supervision from Werner Ziegler, who unfortunately was killed by Mike for disobeying orders and leaving home base in an attempt to rendezvous with his wife for a weekend. And Hector Hector Salamanca is now incapacitated and was placed in a home due to Nacho replacing his heart medication with placebos. Nacho has also become a mole for Gus Fring, the rival drug operation of the Salamanca family. And Lalo Salamanca, who is Hector's nephew, arrived from Mexico to oversee and run the drug operation in the wake of Hector's condition. And that's where we left off with season four. 
So there's this big overarching drug story we're going to get to as our last thing we're going to talk. But there's some character stuff that happens that is unrelated to that more or less that I want to talk about. And I want to start with Mike because he is directly affected by the season finale of four where he kills Werner and it's really affecting him. Gus has decided that as long as Lalo is across the border, they cannot resume operations of the super lab. So Mike pays Warner's men in full, sends them back home. And one of the workers, Kai says something about Warner getting what he deserved. And Mike punches him in the face. He also is not happy that Gus seems to lack compassion towards Werner after him being killed. And Gus refuses to take payment from Gus for no work, which Gus calls a retainer. And you see this really affecting Mike as he snaps at his granddaughter as they're building her treehouse. He gets drunk at a bar and demands this postcard of the Sydney Opera House be taken down. You may not may not remember uh, that Werner's father helped to construct the Sydney Opera House, which is why this picture gets him so riled up. And he breaks the arm of a gang member who bothers him on the way home. So Mike is in a really bad mental headspace after killing Werner and is it's affecting his whole life around him. I guess the thing that I was not expecting is I was not expecting them to go at this angle of, oh, Mike has PTSD from killing this guy now. I don't I don't think we've ever seen Mike really be emotionally vulnerable in any of the seasons that we've seen. I mean, I think we've seen him emotionally connect with his granddaughter, but I don't think we've seen him as affected as he is uh, in these first few episodes of season four where he kind of has to uh, make make peace with the fact that he did kill this person, and this is a really big deal. And I don't think that this is some bit, something we see out of a lot of TV shows, and I think it's what elevates uh, a show like Better Call Saul from so many others, is the fact that he does kill someone. It, it means something to him. It's not something that is instantly forgotten the next season. It's something that does have some carryover effect. And I think that's very powerful that they would take the time. They would take the, the episodes to really build Mike back up. And I think that from a character standpoint, I think that's what makes season five overall the strongest season of the show up to this point is the fact that Peter Gould and the writing staff have put in the work uh, to really build these characters up. And now you're just really see a lot of that come to fruition. You see it with Mike, you see it with Saul, you see it with Kim. You just see how all of these characters uh, have grown and you see kind of uh, the point where they're at, where some of them are, are about to uh, pun very much intended here, break bad. And Mike has already broken bad and it's kind of um, has crossed a line that he can never go back to. And I think that you see that in so many of this and it's remarkable to see just how tired Mike looks at the beginning of the season. And, uh, you know, of course, part of the angle of the show is this is a prequel, but everybody is older than they were on Breaking Bad, which is a which is a fascinating dichotomy because they're not even trying to hide the fact uh, that these that these actors are getting older. And I think it kind of in a way, I think it works artistically for the show uh, to have them getting older in this prequel. But. Mike especially just looks so annoyed. Uh, we do get Mike in a workplace yelling at someone, which makes me very a very happy person. <laughs> but I do just want to address very quickly before I send it back to you, Kevin. Uh, the moment when Mike breaks that gang member's arm, 
I don't know how they got that sound effect or where they got that sound effect, but it is one of the most repulsive things that I have ever heard on a movie or television show. It's pretty gross, and it, it does its job of scaring the gang members off and just showing them, like, I'm not an, an older gentleman to mess with. Although that does come back around to bite him in the butt shortly after this. But yeah, that's a big thing about Better Call Saul is like you see these characters in their stages like Gus is not as cool, calm and collected as he is here as he will be in Breaking Bad. Mike isn't as stoic and just mean kind of spirited that he is there and and showing no trying not to get personally involved in anything. Everything's just business here. These are these things that are still hard pills for him to swallow. And he's still not fully recovered from having to deal with the death of his son. And that's what gets him to snap at his granddaughter. She mentions his son and and talking and that builds up to him snapping at her. So there's just a lot of things going together. And I think the lack of compassion towards Werner really disgusts him. So you're right. There is this more humane side of Mike that we haven't seen in Better Call Saul. And I like that because then, you know, otherwise, why have them in Better Call Saul if you're not going to see these beginning stages of what they were to become? We talked about how he's a great choice to bring back here, but you're getting that again here. And like you said, it's great that they didn't just kill Warner and then move on into season five with no repercussions or no acknowledgement of it. And speaking of repercussions, Mike's actions do have their repercussions here. Because his daughter-in-law is not comfortable with him visiting his granddaughter for the time being. And he goes by that same gang's house again. And this time, they all attack him and he gets stabbed in the kidney. When he wakes up, he's in this strange private ranch inside the Mexican border. The episode actually ends with him going outside. And you're like, what is going on? Where is Mike right now? And we discover shortly after that it was Gus's personal doctor, Barry Goodman, who we'd seen before. He had treated Mike and that the ranch itself belongs to Gus. And the ranch serves as housing for low-income Spanish-speaking residents. And there's also this fountain inside that reads Dedicado a Max. Now, Max was Gus's partner who was killed by Hector on Dottoladio's orders in the flashback of season four of Breaking Bad that we saw. And Gus eventually does come and talks to Mike, and he tells Mike that, I need you to help me win the war against the Salamancas as you understand revenge. And he also basically explains to Mike that, I understand that you may have your issues, what you're doing here, but the path you're going down now of alcoholism and abandoning your family, if you work with me, this gives you an outlet to take out your frustrations and you can still have that personal life and have everything be okay and still be able to provide from afar from his daughter-in-law and keep that relationship strong and healthy. And ultimately we do see that Mike goes back to Gus, but this scene that ended this episode, this conversation with Mike and Gus was, was very powerful. And I thought it was a very, very great dialogue between the two of them. I mean, I think it kind of lays down the thesis for what the rest of the show is going to look like. We have seen the drug storyline become more and more prominent to the point where it was in a way, even more important than what was happening then between Jimmy and Kim and their hotel room. I mean, the drug storyline, with Lalo especially, really came to the forefront. But with the Mike Gus stuff, I think what you see in the first half is it seems like Mike is trying to kind of uh, tear away uh, from Gus. But then ultimately what happens is after he gets stabbed and 
he kind of has a, a rock bottom moment, I guess. I, I, you know, I don't think he's necessarily an alcoholic in the strictest sense of the word, but he is going through either PTSD or some form of depression, which, of course, Mike, being who he is, is not going to respond to that uh, by seeking the help of a therapist or a licensed professional to perhaps have a conversation about his feelings. That is not the type of person that, that, that Mike is. And Gus knows this. And Gus is able to play off of that and basically channel that energy to the point where, let's say, Mike is going to uh, continue killing for Gus and working for Gus and helping him to win this war against the family. And, uh, you know, I have, an, I, have a, I have a number of observations about kind of the way that Gus is doing things and how he's trying to win the war and take over, which we'll get to, I'm sure. But in just focusing on the Mike angle of things, you definitely see him uh, with a renewed sense of purpose after that conversation and in returning back to the fold and getting back to Albuquerque and and physically recovering uh, from what happened. And I think one of my complaints, and this is kind of a minor complaint, is the timeline is a little bit on the janky side because we know that Mike gets beaten up pretty bad. He gets stabbed. The recovery time is a little bit unclear to me relative to everything else that is happening on the show, and especially for Mike, who is an older gentleman, I'm not sure he'd be able to recover as quickly as possible, and sometimes sometimes I wish that the timeline was a little bit more clear on this stuff, because it doesn't seem like there's ever a big time jump during this part of the season. There isn't and i will give them a minor pass because he's i feel like he stays there long enough to get the treatment and make sure it doesn't get infected and then gets a a buttload of pills and gets sent on his way because i think they know mike's a caged animal there and you gotta send him home and he can recover at home and it's not like you see him doing forward rolls and shootout scenes for the rest of the season he's more or less the most action he gets is driving around and and maybe doing some some stationary things, but that's really about it. So I can, I can give them a pass in that sense there. Although I will agree that understanding the passage of time would definitely be helpful. So what you're saying is despite all his rage, he's just a rat in a cage. I would never say that. (laughs) Who would have thought that I would make a musical reference. I would never have guessed that. (laughs) You know what? That song is in the trailer for that movie Willard from like the early 2000s. So it's kind of a movie reference too. It is kind of a movie reference, but you should be really proud of me. I know it's Smashing Pumpkins, but. Jerome, the biggest NWA fan I know. Anyways. The biggest NWA fan you know. So the last thing about Mike here is that we see that whatever Gus told him or him going back to work does indeed work because he does get to see his uh, granddaughter again, and he talks with his daughter-in-law as they're washing dishes, and he he brings up the son himself, which definitely impresses and surprises his daughter-in-law. And he tells her that he's all better now and says it's because I've decided to play the cards I was dealt. So things seem to be good with, with Mike on the family side, at least, which is nice to see. So something I was thinking about, because I think that 
part of the thesis, I believe, of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is that these are two very uniquely American shows that to try to adapt these shows for foreign audiences would be very difficult because there are very specific circumstances that America creates to where things like this can happen. And I think that was more true of Breaking Bad than Better Call Saul. But in thinking about this situation specifically, so let's think about what Mike is doing or feels like he has to do. So he he works at the courthouse as kind of a parking attendant. So presumably he was kind of an hourly employee. So he probably wasn't getting paid that well, may or may not have had any health insurance or any sort of benefits. So he clearly wasn't making a good living. So what he does is he goes works for Gus and he's making a lot of money, hundreds of thousands, maybe uh, millions of dollars at some point. And the reason that he is ultimately doing this is so that he can take care of his granddaughter and his daughter-in-law. And I think about like the circumstances, like if Mike doesn't do this, then those two, maybe they're in a crappy apartment in a crappier part of Albuquerque and his daughter-in-law is going to a crappy public school. Like presumably she's going to end up going to a much better school because they're living in a better area because that's how America works. So ultimately we come to this point and it's something that was illuminated in Breaking Bad, but I think here you kind of see more so the process of how this happens, but ultimately you know, Mike feels like he has to make this choice because in order for him to be able to take care of his family, he feels like he has to do all of these other evil deeds to do that. So in a way, it's blood money, and the hope is that his daughter-in-law and his granddaughter will never find out, which we ultimately we don't know whether they are. But I think it's really it's really incredible to think about the steps that it ta- took to get to this process to where Mike is doing this to take care of his family because otherwise his daughter-in-law is just another single mom who's struggling like so many other single moms are really doing in the United States. Right, and it makes you wonder what would Mike's reaction to be if she were to find another man and remarry. I know like uh, the granddaughter changes everything, but let's, if there was no granddaughter in the picture, does he still feel the same way? I'm sure – if she's a single mother, he would because obviously I, he pins his son's own death on himself for getting him involved in the police and all the stuff they did there. But if she remarries or finds another man who's can take care of her and all that stuff, does he stay in the picture as much or does he feel like maybe he can retire on the money he's made and keep it for himself? That's a lot of those kind of questions, too, that who knows? Maybe they'll get addressed in season six. Maybe they won't. Uh, but we certainly don't see either of these characters in Breaking Bad. So hard to say. Here's a sequel series idea, Kevin. What if the granddaughter and Amanda's kid team up to get revenge on Jesse and Saul? What if that's season six? Wouldn't that be something? That would be something. I don't know if it would be good. (laughs) But it would be something. It would be something. It's going to be a Disney plus Star Wars thing soon. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Hashtag it's all connected. All right. Well, we got to talk about Gene. As every season has so far, we open with a scene with Gene Jimmy's alias post Breaking Bad in the future. This is by far the longest Gene scene we get at around 13 minutes. And it takes us exactly where the other scene left off after he felt like he was getting caught in the cab ride by the gentleman who was from Albuquerque. So he gets out. He is very visually shaken up. He walks back to the mall to get his car, drives it home, changes his license plate, skips work for a day or so. And we even see that like, 
he's ready to go. Like he gets back to his house and he's got bags packed. He takes out that, that little, uh, that tin that he has a kid and it's filled with diamonds. Like he has an escape plan. He's, he doesn't have to pack. He just has his stuff. And if he's got a bounce, he's ready. Uh, and he's also has a, a, like a police radio. He's like, just like listening for any suspicious activity or just seeing if he's gonna, something about him's going to come up. I think he even does the drive out to a diner and back to see if just any, any, he gets picked up or anything. It's, it's really kind of testing the waters there. And he goes back to work and he's on lunch break one day at the mall when wouldn't you know it, that same cab driver does indeed recognize him. He's there. He comes up to Gene and really pushes him hard into admitting it. And he does. And Gene immediately takes action. He gets on the phone and he places a call to none other than, as you put it, Jerome, Robert Effin Forster. Ed himself, the disappearer, looking to change his identity once more. But we see that he sees something out in the mall that causes him to change his mind and say he's going to handle it himself. So give me your thoughts on this on this whole scenario, this longest gene scene. Robert Forrester back again. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you thought. I, I Every time I see a mall now, I just can't help but feel how dystopian it is to realize just how much malls are struggling, especially during the pandemic and just in general. So that always strikes me every time I see a mall but I, because I think it's such a representation of kind of the 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 the, bet, the worst parts of of America, which is something I think about a lot. I don't know why, uh, but to get to the gene stuff specifically, I, I think this is we're very clearly building towards something. And when we get into season six predictions, I'm sure I'll have a lot more to say about the gene part of this, but just in watching this, there's a lot of tension that is established. But I think what, what makes this scene so good is the actor that they cast, whose name I did not write down, which I should have, but he is one of those actors that is cast in these kinds of roles where he is playing a heavy, he's a henchman, or he's a dirty cop, or he's something like that. I've seen him in a ton of television shows playing just this sort of skeezy character. So they clearly made a choice by casting this actor to play this role. And it is never established how much he knows or whether he really is just a fan, whether he is, you know, trying to set up Saul to possibly kill him or whatever. So it is never made clear. I think it'll be more clear next year. It really works for that reason. I don't know if it did for you. I don't know if that actor, if you have any sort of relationship, but he definitely comes across on the skeezier side. And I think that's another thing that makes that scene work. And I think Bob Odenkirk's performance, you know, many times he plays a very bombastic extrovert. And here he is just trying to be very quiet, keep to himself. It's just a really great performance by him. And yeah, we also get the last, one of the last recorded performances of Robert Forrester. I think there was a movie, I don't know if it's the last thing he filmed, but I do know that there was a movie that came out this year that also had Robert Forrester. So, but it is definitely one of the last things that he did. And I think it says a lot. I think it says a lot about what this crew thinks of Robert Forrester, that he was in Breaking Bad. They brought him in at the end of the season, uh, the end of the series. He is in El Camino and is featured very prominently in that movie. I mean, he's in a very he's in a solid 10 to 15 minute scene interacting with Jesse Pinkman. And then here he is at the beginning of Better Call Saul. And admittedly, 
Uh, it is not a very long scene, but it's an important one because by calling him, we know what that means, and it's it's such a signifier. And that's one of the reasons it's almost it's it's really important to almost watch Breaking Bad first so that you know what's happening. I don't really know what Gene has seen. I don't really have any speculation as to that. But you could definitely tell that we are coming to the end because I think they did a really good job of of making you invested in what's happening in that timeline. And yeah, I'll have a lot more to say when we, we talk about season six predictions. Don Harvey is the name of the taxi driver. I don't have any like relationship with him and I didn't recognize him right away. But like I looked at his Wikipedia and I was like, OK, he's in like the untouchables and gangster squad and die hard too. And like, you know, one time appearances in some TV show. So I've at least seen him a couple times, but it's not like he's stuck in my memory and I knew exactly who he was when I saw him, but that's the actor's name you're looking for. Uh, I'm glad you brought up El Camino. We watched it at the end of breaking bad, but as a reminder, El Camino came out between better call Saul seasons four and season five. So they were writing, and I think starting work on, Better Call Saul season five or probably like producing it or, you know, it's probably in post-production by that point while El Camino was going on. And this phone call with Gene was originally going to be one sided because the furniture store that Ed works at in Breaking Bad at the time of Breaking Bad was a was a vacuum store had been converted into a furniture store. So there was a lot of work redoing the store as the vacuum store from Breaking Bad and redressing it and having the store for a couple of days because the people who owned it had to shut it down so they could film it. But one of the people on El Camino calls Vince Gilligan or someone and says, well, we have Robert Forrester here. Do you want us to just shoot the other side of the phone call with him? They're like, hey, that's a pretty good idea. So they like change camera lenses and things like that because they're filming different stuff for film versus television and they got the shot. So if it was not for El Camino, wouldn't be this scene with Robert Forrester here. And especially since he passed away, I am so glad they were able to get it because it adds so much more to that scene than just a one-sided conversation of Gene on the phone. Yeah, anytime I think you get kind of a last performance from someone, I think there's always extra weight added to it, whether it is intentional or unintentional. The reality is is that we know that he is probably not going to be able to do any more appearances in season six. I can't imagine they're going to do any de-aging or recasting. That's just not something that they've consistently done. It's really great that they got this, this last moment and then he got to, uh, he got to p- complete the triangle, which uh, very few people have been able to do to be on breaking bad El Camino and better call salt. That is uh, that is quite the club. It's a small club, but he's part of it. So going from Gene, we'll go to Jimmy. And I am I might call him Jimmy. I might call him Saul Parts. There's really no rhyme or reason to it. But as Jimmy is starting his new career as Saul Goodman, a lawyer, he understands there's going to be this challenge in converting all of his cell phone customers into clients. So he decides his best course of action is to give away his remaining burner phones with his number programmed into them and by also offering 50% off for nonviolent felonies. And he also hands out business cards at the county court office. This quickly earns him, I believe he said, 45 clients. We have this really great montage scene where he's in the, the courthouse handling all of his obligations and is scheduled just like a master. And we also see he's now donning the signature Bluetooth earpiece that Saul will wear in Breaking Bad. He even pulls off this masterful stunt where he purposely gets himself stuck in an elevator with Suzanne. She's another lawyer representing 20 of his clients' opposition, and she's also that same woman who 
he got to drop the case against heel last season by barraging her with letters and doing the, the setting up the fake phone numbers and things like that. And he pays off the, the electrician handling the elevator to get this done. So this is really a great insight into kind of the, the beginning stages of how Jimmy's going to act as solace, doing whatever it takes to, to kind of get his cases taken care of, but he's still re- remaining above the board, if not in a, a non-traditional approach. So one of the things that really surprised me about this season is, yes, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of tremendous and very serious character work. But there is also a lot of comedy throughout this season, especially with Jimmy slash Saul. All of his lawyer shenanigans, it feels like I've compared it to a Bugs Bunny cartoon. And we could talk about specifically how it really became a Bugs Bunny cartoon. But it absolutely comes across that way in those scenes, even with Suzanne. Like this, this could very easily have been a 30 minute Saul slash Jimmy as a lawyer just getting away with various shenanigans. And I think that that show also could have been, it would have been very different tonally, but it also probably could have worked. But I, I just, I really appreciated those moments because. I think this is a show, especially this season, that can become very serious and there's there's a lot going on. And I think any time that you can have a lot of those moments of levity, I think are they are welcome. And I don't think you necessarily even – I mean Breaking Bad certainly had its comedic moments, but it always – especially the last two seasons – of that show, you're just watching and you're sweating the whole time, just wondering what's going to happen, who's going to die. And I, I can't imagine that that is a pleasant rewatch necessarily, but better call Saul. Even if you, even if you like skip maybe a couple episodes at the end, like there's a lot of genuinely funny, humorous material and, and just a lot of shenanigans. And I think what you see is that the thing that Jimmy is able to do that no other character in this universe is able to do almost is he is able to relate to the working class people and he is able to appeal to them in ways that other people don't. And he has a lot of agency and power because he is able to, he taught, he probably talks to the electrician. He probably knows the electrician's name, he probably at least knows cursory information about that person because that's who Jimmy is. Jimmy knows how to manipulate situations. He knows how to be an extroverted human being, even though he is a bit of a shyster. He is also kind of the smartest person in the room because even though he doesn't have a degree from Harvard University, he is probably one of the most street smart people that has ever been in one of these prestige dramas. And I think that is so important to Jimmy as a character. I mean, there's people I know who are book smart as all get out. They have several degrees, great grades and all that stuff. And they are horrible at at communicating with other people, being relatable. So how, how far can that get you? And Jimmy is able to get clients and get help and, you know, know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody in times that he needs because he's built this network and because he's so affable and friendly. And yeah, maybe he's a little bit of a shyster, but there's a charm to him. It makes you want him to be your lawyer. And he and he also has no problem telling it to some of these uh, people like the the 50 percent off kids and stuff like here's what's going to happen if you don't accept my representation. Here's what I can do for you. And he's not afraid to walk away. 
like a good salesman or a, you know, a good customer trying to sell himself. So he's he's incredibly smart and rubs a lot of people in the profession the wrong way, but his clients seem to really dig him and that and that carries him very, very far. And like you said about the humor in the show, I think it not only works for the level levity and just making it more fun to watch, but it also makes those tense moments all the more tense. If the whole show tense is tense and dramatic, then those moments don't land as hard as I think they do when you do have that comic relief at times as well. Certainly. I think that comedy is so important for prestige dramas. And I think it's something that a lot of dramas don't do as good of a job of is putting those moments of levity in. And I I think it makes a lot of TV, even if the shows are good with production values and a good cast, like there are some dramas that it feels like it's homework to watch. And I'm just going to use Westworld as an example because I think it's very easy to pick on that show. But like that is a show that is a dramatic show and it is always going for for drama and some sort of tension that's going on. But there's no levity, and it makes the show very difficult to watch. And Better Call Saul, even though there are those moments, Better Call Saul is a very easy show to watch. Absolutely, yeah. If you're if you're getting into a show and you feel like the next episode is a chore, something that you just have to watch, like something's wrong, and maybe it's time to reevaluate if that show is uh, for you, and you should continue forward. But speaking of levity and a moment that kind of a story that goes from being humorous to a more serious way is between Howard and Jimmy. As there's one time in the courthouse where Howard asks Jimmy to lunch and Jimmy pushes it off for a while, but eventually accepts it just to get Howard off his back. And Howard doesn't outright say it, Jerome, but HHM needs an M. And Howard wants to make things right and do what he feels he should have done long ago and offers Jimmy a job at the firm. And you get the impression that Jimmy was blindsided by this offer. He was really not expecting that to be what the lunch is about. So he digests this, and how does he respond? Well, the way anybody would respond to a job offer, by tossing bowling balls over Howard's fence and crushing his car. And then later, he sends prostitutes to disrupt a business lunch between Howard and and Cliff, which is the great Ed Ed Bagley Jr. returning for this hilarious lunch scene. What I think is really interesting about this whole story is Jimmy does a lot of really questionable things, but there's always that ends justify the means aspect to him. This is all just purely ill-intentioned. There's no be- bigger purpose of Jimmy doing this than just to be cruel to Howard. And I think that's that's kind of like the first crack in the Jimmy Saul facade character, what have you here, is that there, he's not doing good for his clients or some greater perspective. He just, for whatever reason, hates Howard or is mad at Howard or is annoyed with Howard and just embarrasses him in front of his colleagues and damages his really expensive car. What a moment uh, with the bowling balls. I would like to think that they kept the, the, the location of the house a little bit more on the vague side so that they did not have pizza on the roof problems like they oh. did with Breaking Bad. <laughs> Gosh, I hope not. I haven't heard of any bowling balls there, so I, I guess good for humanity, but also good for them keeping it more of a secret, the location. Yeah, let's keep that a secret. And let's not – because don't, don't do that. Just don't, don't throw bowling balls onto someone's car. Probably one of the greatest smash cuts in the history – of Better Call Saul is that moment where Jimmy is talking uh, to his clients, uh, the sex workers, and asks for their hourly rate, and then we smash cut 
to the fancy restaurant. And what a moment. I don't even know why they brought in Ed Bagley Jr. for this one scene, but uh, his his reaction is classic and it's great. And that's when I talk about the Bugs Bunny cartoon, that this this specifically is what I'm talking about because it's shenanigans. And is it ill-intentioned? Absolutely. Is Jimmy a bad person for doing it? Probably. Did I laugh every time? Yes. Of course. Of course you did. It's 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 very fun to watch from afar. But yeah, uh, I just thought that was just inter- an interesting point of Jimmy's character. He's just watching through the binoculars and laughing at it. And it's good stuff. I mean, because the thing is that like Howard isn't a great guy, like even though maybe he didn't deserve this, but Howard's still kind of an asshole. So it's not completely unjustified. I, no, and I certainly wouldn't say that. And you see he has that namaste license plate. So you kind of roll your eyes like, oh, here we go. He's doing some hippy dippy yoga stuff or something and feels like he's all better and he's going to try to right the wrongs. But, you know, Kim even says it kind of at the end of the season. It's just like Howard's all about Howard. Like all of his decisions are for are for him, no matter if they seem like they're not. It's it's to help his character and to help him feel better or whatever else. So. Uh, whether you agree with that or not is up to you, the viewer, but I do think there is something to that. And later on at the courthouse to end one of the episode, Howard has figured out that it is Jimmy who committed these acts and tells him that the job offer is now off the table. And Jimmy makes this big scene in the courthouse, once again, pinning Chuck's death back on Howard and yelling at him that he has no idea how high he can fly. Now, this is like a big quote from Better Call Saul, like a big moment of him yelling, you have no idea how high I can fly. That's that's something that was a big takeaway from season one as kind of a, a quote or, or a, a sound bite, if you will. Um, yeah, I just, I just found this whole thing with, with Howard and Jimmy very fascinating. Uh, and it also turns out to be, of course, he was in, just in a flashback in season four, but no Chuck whatsoever in season five. And I think that's okay because he he really hung heavy on season four. His death loomed large. Uh, But in season five, we've moved past that. Like, you know, again, Jimmy changes his last name from McGill to Goodman and he's moved past it. So kind of as a show, we have too. And Howard is, you know, maybe he's writing, trying to write wrongs for the right way. Maybe it's for his own personal gain. Maybe it's for HHM's outlook. Who knows? But I found uh, the use of Howard in this season to be uh, very well done with him and Kim. And uh, it, it got to show unique sides of both of them. Well, I think also what works is that we only see things from Howard's perspective. We don't actually see a lot of anyone else at HHM. I don't even know if we see any other employees, which is kind of a disappointment for many reasons. So we don't actually know if he's telling the truth about HHM being successful. I mean, it might be a complete disaster and he's just projecting success. And if Jimmy were to go there, then maybe he would just find out, like, what a crap hole it is. So that that's something I was very curious about. And I think it's – I think there's a reason they didn't show us that because they're trying to keep that close to the vest. And I'm sure based on what happens at the end of the season, we're going to get some answers as to where HHM really is in season six. But I think they keep that close to the vest for a very good reason. And, yeah, I, I think the Howard stuff was was kind of a pleasant diversion. And the, I, in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, like, where is this going? Where is this going? And then ultimately there is going to be a payoff and there is a reason that Howard did have a few sporadic appearances. I think having that scene with Kim was important because basically he reveals that Jimmy's kind of a dick and Kim doesn't care. And it's kind of been a consistent thing where on the one hand, Kim 
doesn't want Jimmy to do certain things, but on the other, she kind of likes it. I'm so glad you mentioned that because Kim was the next character I'm talking about, and we'll get into her deep, deep story. I feel like she's maybe the most fascinating character of this season so far, uh, or of the or of the season, I should say. And I'll just say it: I'm really worried about Kim in a lot of different ways. Mentally, is she gonna live? There's a lot of things they made you think about Kim in this season, and I am definitely worried for for the outcome of Kim Wexler, whether she lives or dies in season six. Uh, I'm very concerned. I am concerned about her behavior. I am not necessarily as concerned about her life. Okay. And again, season six predictions. I have very specific predictions and I will have a soliloquy about it. All right. So we start the season with Kim talking to Jimmy about this name change to Saul. She doesn't see the big picture from it, but also doesn't discourage him from it. Kim has this client who it's in their best interest to take this plea bargain. And she's telling Saul about this and Saul says, you know, let's work up this con or whatever. And they're all in the same room. They're just far away. So they can't hear them. And con- and Kim turns this down. It's like, I don't want to con them and tells Saul like, Hey, don't, don't con them. Don't come near my clients. But interestingly, she was able to get that client to take the plea bargain because she pretended that Saul was from the DA's office and they were going to turn it down. And so she was able to get them to accept the next day. Jimmy's showing her this house that he's interested in maybe purchasing for the two of them. And during this walkthrough, even though this con worked, Kimmy tells Jimmy he doesn't want him lying to any of her clients again, to which Jimmy agrees. Spoiler alert, doesn't really keep that promise. But this is definitely at this beginning stage of the season. You see that it's it's more professional distancing Kim is doing between herself and Jimmy, even though, like you said, there are certain tactics of Jimmy that he uses that she finds admirable and thinks that, hey, maybe I can use this to my advantage as well. I think it's one of those things where they really went out of their way to make him a more significant character. And she's been a significant character the last couple seasons, especially. But the fact that they gave her her own flashback, which I'm sure you're going to address. So I won't yes. I won't steal your thunder on that. But they really went out of their way to make Kim. Uh, almost Jimmy's equal in a lot of ways and make her an, an important part of this universe, an important part of this story, because what we are seeing is we are seeing that Jimmy was enabled by a lot of people, but it seems like Kim ultimately was one of his biggest enablers and one of the biggest reasons that he became Saul Goodman. I mean, not only because he's trying to impress her and trying to do well, but there is a love in their relationship. And I don't know if there is, I don't know if they're going for this idea of soulmates, but that's kind of the vibe that they're giving off between these two is that for whatever flaws, both of these people have that there is an emotional and physical connection between these two people that just exists. And even if they are bad for each other, they cannot necessarily uh, live without each other. And that will also play into some of my predictions. And all I can say, Kevin, it is it is great that Ray Seahorn was nominated and won an Emmy for this, right? Yes. You're getting you're getting me angry all over again. I thought I had this behind me when it happened, but no, she was not nominated, and no, she did not win. Oh well, the Emmys are dumb. That's Absurd. all that can be said. Absurd. I don't get it. I think even. 
I forget if it was Mike or Gus was nominated and like, I think it was Gus Giancarlo Esposito. And like, yes, Giancarlo Esposito is a tremendous actor and did a great job as Gus as he always does. But watching season five, you're really going to tell me that he was more deserving of that nomination than Ray Seahorn blows my mind. Doesn't make any sense. And Bob Odenkirk. And And I I would, I would argue that Giancarlo Esposito is at best the fourth person who should have been nominated because I would say that Jonathan Banks and Bob Odenkirk both deserve nominations over him. I mean, I could almost make an argument for Tony Dalton over. Yeah, I was about to say. Well. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just say that I think that the Emmys in recent years, I think the Emmys has actually done a, a much better job of representing the best of television. And I'm almost wondering, is this an AMC problem? Is AMC not glad handing enough are they not promoting the show for Emmys as much for whatever reason? Because it's just – it's very odd to me that that Ray Seahorn did not get nominated because the way the, the, the way the TV critics were talking about her. Yes. It just feels like a layup. Like it feels like, oh, it's just something that you take for granted because I very much feel like when it comes to the Academy Award – if 10 critics say that somebody's going to get nominated and 10 critics who know what they're talking about, the odds are that that person is going to get nominated for whatever category. And if it's not, then there's usually a really big stink about it. But in this case, Ray Seahorn was getting discussed for an Emmy nomination and it just didn't happen. And it's really, really weird. Okay, so it got nominated for Outstanding Drama Series. Giancarlo Esposito, like I mentioned, got nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actor. And then Thomas Schnauz and Gordon Smith each got nominated for Outstanding Writing for Drama for Bad Choice Road and Bagman, respectively. Uh, I don't think they won any of those. And I think, it, and then I think, um, I, I was telling you this morning, there's this this web series that I did called Employee Training Legal Ethics with Kim Wexler, which is a lot of fun. I really recommend people watch that one for an outstanding short form comedy or drama series. But that's obviously a, a very different Emmy Award than the primetime Emmys that happen. And yeah, there was a lot of people felt both Ray and Bob both got snubbed. Bob had actually been nominated for every other season of Better Call Saul but this one. And yeah, people were really upset about Ray not being nominated and, and you know, were spoke glowingly of her work here, as they should. So uh, I shake my fist at you, Emmys. What are you doing? I mean, again, I, I think you can't shake your fist at the Emmys. But I think this is all I, I have to believe that this is an AMC problem, too. Could be. I don't know. It just it just seems weird to me that, you know, they that show would still get four nominations then. But they, none went to, to Ray. Crazy. Yeah, I mean, I would I would need to study the other dr- drama Emmys because, I mean, I, I remember just like Schitt's Creek won all the Emmys, like literally all the Emmys in the comedy category. So it was very clear what everybody was doing during quarantine because that show was basically rewarded for, for their, for their five or six seasons of work. And then including myself, I watched the whole thing during this quarantine. Yeah. So it's very clear that people watch that show and that's, that's what they were embracing. I guess they were not catching up on better call Saul. And that's a little bit of a disappointment. And I think, you know, I think part of the problem is so, Better Call Saul does eventually end up on Netflix, but the fifth season of it just aired on AMC. So I wonder if that might be part of the issue as well, is that because it airs on AMC and is not on Netflix like 10 days after the season or the day after the season ends, I wonder if that's a problem as well, because I definitely had to 
buy the season on Amazon, which I had no problem doing. It's $15, and it's a show that I know that I'm going to really like, so I didn't have a problem with it. But if you are John, John Q. Public, who is not doing a podcast about Better Call Saul, and either A, you don't care about spoilers, or B, you're good enough, you do a good job of avoiding spoilers, then you're probably just waiting for the fifth season to come out on Netflix. And I wonder if that if accessibility may have been an issue, too. I mean, I can say I know people in my life who are like, if it's not streaming, forget it. Like, I'm just never going to see it, which is it is what it is. I, I understand that mentality. But yeah, it 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 does take a lot for people to go that extra mile to find something if it's not easy to watch or if they still have cable to DVR or what have you. So it is what it is. Hopefully, hopefully Kim gets uh, hopefully Ray Seahorn, I should say, gets what what she deserves for season six coming to the Emmys. Maybe they're going to do that whole like awarded to you at the end thing like with peter jackson and return of the king and all that stuff yeah and with Fitz creek i mean I, that's that's what i would very much like to see and the thing is that drama especially is such a competitive category but with the pandemic being what it is there are going to be a lot of series that probably get canceled so i think the competition may be a lessened a little bit so hopefully in a way that opens the door for better call saul to have a really good emmys whenever season six comes out well, we still got a lot to talk about with Kim here. One of the reasons we remember that Kim brought Mesa Verde to Schweiker and Coakley in the first place is so she can get Mesa Verde off her back so she can go do her pro bono work, which she really enjoys. So she's very annoyed when she gets called one day to deal with a Mesa Verde concern, which is over this gentleman named Everett who is refusing to move out of his house that is on this property that Mesa Verde owns. And Mesa Verde wants to clear that lot to build a call center, and all of his other neighbors have moved and they've demolished all the homes, so he's just a man onto an island of himself, but he's refusing to budge. And they think Kim is going to be the one to convince him to do so. And she eventually takes this really stern approach with Everett that she does not care for. She feels bad about it, even though Mesa Verde seems happy with that approach. And she returns to his house later on her own time. She's more empathetic and even has printouts of several options for homes that he can move into. And she even tells Everett this story about when she was a little girl and doesn't really know what being a homeowner is like because they moved around so much. And because of what you've seen with Kim, you're kind of wondering if this story is BS or not, just to tug on his heartstrings. And it doesn't really matter because she shuts the door in her face and she vents her frustrations to Jimmy over – breaking some beer bottles in the driveway and even goes as far to present to Kevin Wachtel of Mesa Verde, this brand new piece of lot. That's pretty close that they can purchase and build a call center there instead, but he turns it down. So Kim's really going the extra mile here to try to let this man keep his home. And it's just not working. Do you want to talk about how great of an actor he is? Because I know you really appreciated him. He was wonderful. Like he's just somebody who like, there's nothing about him I should like, but there's still something just about his face and the way he carries himself. I found not charming isn't the right word, but I, I appreciated him. And I mean, let's face it. It's not like a giant law firm are the good guys in most situations. So I respected his choices. This this effort I did. Uh, he definitely gave off uh, a little bit of uh, get off my lawn vibes, a little bit of Clint Eastwood. Uh, there was a lot of personality. I think that's the best way I would describe the actor who plays uh, Mr. Acker. And what a great subplot that it just feels like it's going to kind of be this throwaway thing that 
is like something to kill time in one episode. And then it turns into this like multi episode arc and it's very frustrating. And it gets to a point where Jimmy is literally in the office, just throwing all kinds of lawsuits and legal work at Schweikart. It's an incredible subplot that says so much about who Kim and Jimmy slash Saul are and who they are becoming. And it leads to this really important moment at the, at the beginning uh, of the seventh episode, which I'm sure we can get into, but I, it's just I love I love what this storyline represents because it's something that I think could have not worked, and I think if it hadn't, I think it would have really like stopped the show in its tracks. But from casting Acker the way that they did, to throwing these different plot lines in, to having some of Jimmy's shenanigans going on, I, it's just it's really great. Yes, I agree with all of that. And I think because I mentioned it, how she tells this sob story as a little girl and you don't necessarily know if she's telling the truth or not. And you mentioned wanting to get into the flashback. I think now is a good time to get into it because this is the first Kim flashback we see of her as a little girl waiting in the cold with her cello or giant string instrument to be taken home. And her mother pulls up drunk to take her home and she stubbornly refuses to get in the car and says she's going to walk home and Walk home she does, and her mother yells at her something about you never listen, which is a big takeaway from it and and speeds off. But this shows a lot of, I think, Kim's personality and her stubbornness, and I, I think that validates her story that she that she told to Everett there. But you had some things to say about this flashback, so give them to me. Uh, this flashback was so well done. I literally did a double take when they showed Kim's mom because I thought it was Ray Seahorn, and it is not. It is not Ray Seahorn playing the mom, but she literally looks and sounds exactly like Kim. And that is, I mean, that's great casting. I mean, we talk about the detail work all the time. And I remember, Kevin, you talked about in Breaking Bad, there was a time when uh, they, they had to cast a kid actor and we wouldn't even see his face, but they literally went out of their way to cast the right person based on looks and, and sound and whatnot. So... Uh, they did a great job. And and the person that they cast as young Kim also did a very, very good job as well. Uh, but those are the things uh, that struck me about this, the flashback, just the level of detail work. On, a, on that level, I think for, the, for that alone, I think it works. You know, there are some shows that I don't like when they do flashbacks and when they do these kinds of things. But I think with Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, they always do a good job of connecting the flashback to what is actually happening. And I think this flashback just shows how independent Kim can be and how strong of a person she can be. But also I think it shows how vulnerable she can be to potentially to someone like Jimmy slash Saul, who for whatever his faults are, he very clearly cares about Kim. Like, that is 100% something that I truly believe, that he cares about her, he really does love her in all the ways. But I think that flashback really shows that she did not really have someone when she was young that she could rely on. So as an adult, it's probably something that she is searching out for. Either searching out for or it makes her very careful about who she trusts and confides in. Did you feel at any point that maybe her getting Jimmy to become Everett's lawyer was a little bit of an exploitation of, of Jimmy's time and uh, traits, let's say? 
I mean, I definitely got that impression, and I think that's why Jimmy Slash Saul is doing what he's doing because this is what he. I think that's what he thinks he was brought on to do. Like he was given carte blanche to do this because Kim gave him permission, and I think that's one of the reasons that he does that, and that's why I call Kim an enabler because what did she expect was going to happen? Like. You bring him as the lawyer for this case. Do you think he's not going to try to get the best deal? Or do you think he's not going to try to do what he thinks is both best for him and best for their relationship? Because that's what I think he's doing. So for me, the biggest difference between Walter White and Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman is I think at his heart, I think Walt kind of wants to be a bad person. Throughout the series of Breaking Bad, I think Walt wants to steer in that direction. In Better Call Saul, I think Jimmy is actually trying to be a good person, and there are all these forces, some of which are of his own doing, and enablers like him, like even Mike, like other people, and that's kind of what causes Jimmy to get pushed into doing the things that he does. And again, I'm not saying that's an excuse for his behavior, but I think that this enabling is what encourages him to continue to do the things that he does. I Yeah, I think that's a, a tremendous analysis of Saul here. And, and again, you talk about Kim, you know, what does she expect? Well, remember, she watches him in court pull that stunt that involves having a lookalike stand in for his client to try to prove the witness uncredible. And she's like, yep, this is my guy. This is exactly who I need to pull off this stunt. By the way, that uh, stunt with the lookalike is apparently based off of a real thing that happened in the state of California. So I found that to be very fun. Yeah, that Uh, is very interesting. And something else about Jimmy that I think is interesting is while Kim is enabling him, he'll try at points to be like, this is not a road you want to endeavor. And that happens when he does pull all of these stunts to delay and delay and delay and push it off, which is Really fun, really funny, because he gets really extreme at some points. And Kevin from Mesa Verde still won't stand down. And Jimmy says, well, I think we should give up because the next thing you do is you you go down the road into getting into Kevin's personal life. But that's a road that Kim wants to endeavor down. So they do. And they hire a PI, which is Sobchak, which you may remember, Jerome, when Daniel Wormald was hiring those three guys and Mike didn't have any weapons and he laughed at him and he – beat him up. That's, that's who Sobchak was. And unfortunately for Kim and Jimmy, Kevin is squeaky clean. And that's actually a choice that the writers made because one, they didn't want it to be too easy. And two, they thought if that they revealed, there's like this ugly side to Kevin Wachtel, then it really isn't Kim and Jimmy's thing anymore. They're like exploiting a bad thing he did, but that's not really their thing to own. There's no ownership over that really anymore. But Kim does find something in the photos they can use. But before I move on to that, I mentioned to you there was a casting thing they mentioned on the podcast here. And they they never said a name and they never said why. But they mentioned that Sobchak was not the original PI they were going to use. They were being really coy about it. So I asked – I had a hunch and I asked my my friend Alex who's an expert in all this stuff. And he agrees with me that – the casting of this, I believe, was going to be Kubi, Bill Burr, from his character that he played in Breaking Bad. And I think the reason he couldn't do this is because you had mentioned to me that he is now doing The Mandalorian and apparently is doing very well on that show and his character. And I think because of the coy nature they took, they were trying not to blow up his spot, is that 
Bill Burr was going to be in this role, but was too busy filming the Mandalorian. So they had to get Sobchak. That's my, that is my hunch, but it was actually you who made me think that cause you brought to my attention that he was on the Mandalorian. Cause I, uh, I haven't watched it yet, folks. I'm getting there. Kevin is going to be spending all of 2020 watching the new Star Wars content so that he can then watch all of this year's Star Wars content next year. That is uh, that is what Kevin Ford is doing. Uh, Bill Burr is a very busy guy. He also has podcasts. So he is a competitor of ours, Kevin, technically. Bill Burr has a podcast. Uh, he also has a Netflix show, F is for Family. So I know that he is an extremely busy person. So you may be at, you may be correct. It may have been the Mandalorian that prevented him from doing this. But really, he's only in one episode of season one and one episode of season two. So I'm not sure how much that would preclude him from being able to do other television shows. But uh, it is a shame that they could not get him because Bill Burr is very good. Bill Burr... Bill Burr, I really liked him on Breaking Bad. I think he's really good on The Mandalorian. I think he was probably the best part of that Pete Davidson movie that I did not like, uh, The King of Staten Island. Um, Bill Burr's a really good actor. It's a shame they couldn't get him. I I would say Kevin Moore, maybe it was that movie that precluded him from making an appearance more so than The Mandalorian. That's interesting, but I don't know why they'd be so coy about it. I don't know, but I I was wondering if Bill Burr was going to be in this season just out of curiosity or if he was ever going to be in the series. And I guess he may not have the time, which is understandable. So Kim's on this case. But what I really liked is that Richard, who we know from Schweiger and Coakley is now her boss, calls her out for what's going on. He sees right through it, wants her off the case. Kim responds very poorly to this. She's chastising Richard in front of other Schweiger and Coakley personnel. And later she apologizes for it. And she decides that, you know, maybe enough is enough. She finds Jimmy with their plan in motion. He's filming some footage at the nail salon and asks Jimmy, can you try to get Everett to settle so we can get out of this and move on? And Jimmy reluctantly agrees to this. And Kim sets up a meeting with Jimmy herself, Richard, and both Kevin and Paige to work out the settlement. And it works out swimmingly the end. No, I'm just kidding. That's not at all how it works out. So Jimmy goes rogue on her and asks for an absurd $4 million settlement. Then he shows the room what he was filming and he doctored old commercials featuring Kevin's father, Don Wachtel and paints the company in a poor light via these outrageous accusations and solicits calls for these class action lawsuits. And what we learned Kim's insight was that she saw was that Mesa Verde's horse logo was based on a photograph of which they do not have proper permission to use and threatens an injunction on top of these class action lawsuits. And this, of course, makes everybody angry. And Kevin, of course, his main thing is to just get all this taken care of. So he privately talks to Jimmy and makes an agreement to move the call center onto the land proposed by Kim to Kevin in the first place. So all's going to be well, right, Jerome? I mean, Kim gets what she wants in the end, right? The house stays. They move to the call center. That everything's going to be hunky-dory. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's how. That's not how this universe works, Kevin. Things. Uh, things tend not to work out. So I have a question for you before before you go on. So they hire this private detective. This private detective discovers that there is there is basically no chicanery on Kevin's part. He is just an ordinary run-of-the-mill asshole, as opposed to somebody who is com- who is doing illegal things. So Jimmy then has this picture from an artist that may have been used i guess i'm seeing a little bit of a disconnect between like what happened they said that kevin is squeaky clean but then he has this this thing with the picture like what is like what's the deal there 
it sounds to me like they got permission to use it, but maybe the permission that they got to use and how they've been using it are not exactly one and one. Like if there were to be a lawsuit or something that could be brought up, there's probably some lawsuit she could take. It would just have to be up to her to go that extra step. And she may not even be aware of it. So that's kind of my understanding. And Kim maybe knows about this because, again, she's a smart lawyer and maybe has heard of Kevin talk about, oh, this picture and such and such. And she puts in her head like, you know, she could probably sue us. And if she was aware of this situation, they just shrugged off. So those are all the things that they didn't say that I kind of I kind of understood. I mean, it's just I I really, really love where the Mesa, the Mesa Verde storyline went, because I sort of figured there was going to come a point where Kim was going to extricate herself away from this situation. But again, I think this really brings up something uh, that's worth discussing as far as kind of where Kim is as a person, because Kim's big thing is Mesa Verde pays the bills so that she could go work with pro bono clients. And it is very clear to me that Kim, that is what Kim wants to do. Kim does not want to be representing corporate interests and associating herself with a bank. She she ultimately comes to a place where she wants to represent people who need help. And I think Jimmy, to a certain extent, also wants to do that. But what this show makes very clear is there are no financial advantages to working with people, many of whom are black and brown, as they are represented on the show, or they are drug dealers, as we see with Jimmy. But there is very little financial incentive to work with these people. We even see a shot of Kim in this this office. I guess, I mean, it's a basement with all these files of people whose cases are still pending. And I think it's a very powerful statement on the justice system that this is what people are reduced to. People are reduced to files in a basement in a random courthouse in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my guess is that a lot of these, I I would assume and hope that a lot of these files are digitized now. That makes things a little bit better and a little bit easier. But for Jimmy to make money, he has to do underhanded tactics or at least he feels like he has to kim to a certain extent doesn't have to do that but she's still representing a bank that is trying to take away a person's house for no good reason other than they want the land so kim is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place throughout the season because she's there's a lot of tension between what she wants to be doing representing clients who need help and also representing Mesa Verde, who are very clearly making a lot of power moves to become a big bank. And even though this show takes place in 2004, like I could definitely see an angle where maybe there's either a mention or something like where Mesa Verde is like a really important part of why banks collapsed in like 2007 and 2008. Like I could definitely see that being a possibility. So, so those are the things that I was thinking about throughout these episodes and throughout Kim's storyline. Yeah, it, that's very fun to think about. And what did you think of the videos that were that were doctored and presented? I mean, you knew the videos were going somewhere because they they went out of their way to show them shooting the videos, so you knew that they were they were going to come back. And anytime they bring back the nail salon, it's 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 good times. And what so this brings up another question. So the actors that they used in the commercials 
were, did they are they local to New Mexico or are they Los Angeles people? I'm very curious about that. I honestly can't remember like the the randos that they have just come in and stand in front of the green screen. I think it was just a, a random casting call. I can't remember if that if it was in L.A. or New Mexico. However, one thing I do want to mention though is the gentleman who played Kevin's father, Don Wachtel, in those videos is Jay Johnston, who was a writer and cast member for Mr. Show. Uh, that is a great callback. Have you ever watched Mr. Show, Kevin? Y- yes, I, I I like Mr. Show quite a bit. Uh, that show is tremendous. And even the uh, the rebooted version that's on Netflix is also very, very good. Yes, with Bob and David, it was really, really fun. Bob Odenkirk is just a tremendous human being, actor, all-around funny guy. I really hope there's a way to get David Cross in the final season of Better Call Saul. <sighs> Man, I hope so. Or even like Marilyn Rashkub. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. That would yes. be fun crossover too. like even if it's a phone cameo or even if he's like in the background of a shot just get him in there just get him in there somehow please if steven if steven spielberg can cast david cross and bob odenkirk in a serious drama together then better call saul can do the same absolutely i agree with that completely there's something some things you said you didn't see coming and i bet that the end of this episode is something you didn't see coming either because kim is of course furious at jimmy's double cross and there's this big thing where she says that she can no longer trust him, and she basically says they either split up or get married. What a heck of a cliffhanger that was. And I think you texted me like, huh, married, what? Because I don't think uh, anybody saw that uh, being something that she thought was a possibility. Uh, certainly not. <laughs> but as we learn, I mean, they do indeed get married at the beginning of the next episode, but this is a really like transactional marriage. It is all about, for Kim, spousal privilege which is they can refuse to testify against one another and can't be forced to produce documentation against the other in regards to private communications. And I think this is something Jimmy is happy with and Kim's happy with it too. I I do like that you get glimpses of like them being passionate together and they come home for the first time after they're married and they both are all smiles and stuff. And so there is some love in this marriage, but I think it's this distrusting that really forced the hand for it to be pushed into marriage and not just them living together as boyfriend, girlfriend. So it's a bit murky, but uh, I do like that there is some some niceties to this, because I think especially at the end of season four, you saw like, is this a loveless relationship we're seeing now? And although this marriage is very transactional, there is some love love in there. And uh, they got Huel involved again, which I know you always love to see him. How dare you call this marriage transactional when Huel (laughs) is a witness? I am I am just disgusted by your by your by your assertion that this is merely transactional. Anything with Huel is very emotional for me. I love that even he was like, no rings or like congratulations on the kid. And he's like, no, there's there's no kid. And he's like, what? Okay. Love Huel. Love him. To I die. also I also love the idea that he was gonna steal rings for them. Yes. <laughs> and Jimmy's like, nope, that's that's not what this is. Not what uh, not what it's this uh, is it's so good. But uh that wedding scene, it's um it's definitely a unique wedding in the history of television because every every comedy drama, like you think about some of the most famous television episodes that have ever been made, they've been centered around this idea of the wedding between these two characters in the will they or won't they, and it's a big deal, it's a big moment. And here they just like they slap it on to the beginning of a random episode. I mean, it's not random, but you know what I'm going for. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like it's like just at the beginning of an episode, and then the rest of the show is just gonna happen and they're getting married, not because they love each other, although they do, but because it's it's transactional and 
they don't want to they want to avoid be, having to testify against one another. Right. Like it's not random, but like end of the previous episode, she throws out marriage as a quick throwaway line. Next episode, they're in the court getting married. It's that fast. There's no buildup or time in between. It just happens. So I think that's the randomness nature you were speaking to. Yeah. Uh, w- one thing I do like seeing about Kim is the when her and Rich go to Kevin with their tails tucked between their legs and apologize for the meeting with Saul. But then when Kim is dissatisfied with Kevin's response, she goes back and reminds him that, you know, a lot of these issues that came up is because you ignored our recommendations and whoever you take on as your representation going forward. I hope you'll listen to them more. And Kevin is really seems to be appreciative of that candor and infers that they're going to continue to be Mesa Verde's legal representation. So any time like that where you get Kim or somebody else sticking up for themselves like that, I really appreciate and like. And that raises the possibility that Kevin really likes powerful women and likes to be yelled at. So that's wow. something to consider as well. Wow, that is that is a lot, uh, especially since I share share the same name as him. Who knows which Kevin you're accusing of this? Uh, I'm accusing the one that is bald. Okay, that is definitely Kevin Wachtel. Uh, I might be going a little gray, but I still have hair, so I'll take. Yeah, I, I'll take I, I mean, and just to be clear, I am not here to kink shame, but I'm just saying <laughs> it definitely raises the possibility. It does raise that possibility. You might be right. I don't know, uh, and I hope we don't find out. <laughs> I I don't necessarily <laughs> want to find out either. I'm, I'm, well, so I'm things, perfectly fine just, just moving on, never seeing Kevin again. And you might never see Kevin again as eventually there's stuff that happens with Jimmy. We're going to get into the main crux of the story. But Kim decides to quit Schweikert and Coakley over something that happens with Jimmy, lets them keep Mesa Verde. And once again, she's back to being on her own. And not only does she keep all of her pro bono clients, but she meets with a public defender and has to take on 20 additional pro bono felony cases. And this is what. You talked about with the filing room in the bottom of there, very dingy, like light bulbs burnt out and flickering all these these files of some pretty serious cases. So Kim is I guess she's looking at something that she's kind of saying tugs on the heartstrings or these really personal cases where she feels like she's actually doing some good for the community. And uh, worth mentioning, the public defender is played by Roy Wood Jr., who is another comedian on the show in a serious role. But it was actually someone that Peter Gould, who's one of the co-creators of the show, his wife recommended as she was a big fan of The Daily Show. So Roy Wood Jr. here is the public defender with uh, with Kim. So this seemed to be this seems to be Kim's pursuit right now is a lot of these pro bono cases. And again, that question comes up of like, where is the money going to come from? I love that scene between her and uh, Roy Wood Jr. I think he does a very good job, even in this one scene of just kind of bringing everything together and kind of making it clear, like just how awful it is to be a public defender. And based on what I know about public defenders, it is this way, if not even worse, uh, what they have to go through. And they are not paid very well. Uh, It's probably not something that gets talked about enough is just how poor the system is for public defenders. And I'm sure it does vary by county, uh, depending on where you live. But I mean, yeah, it's just, this seems like just uh, a miserable existence and not one that I'm sure a lot of lawyers want to stick around for. And I know a lot of lawyers... When they first start out, they start out in the public defender's office because uh, they don't get paid very well and there's just a lot of experience to be had. And it's very easy to see why somebody would just want to move away from being a public defender because you are dealing with felonies. You're dealing with a lot of cases, the worst of society, people who got bad, who have bad luck, bad breaks. So it's just a lot. And obviously that's not what the show is about. 
but you definitely get a lot of hints as to just how messed up the justice system is. Right. And she has her own run in with Howard in the elevator and informs him of her professional decision. And Howard then pulls her aside into an empty courtroom, assuming that Jimmy had a hand in her decision and also informs her of the stunt that Jimmy has pulled on him with the bowling balls and whatnot. And she can't help but laugh at Howard, which I love. And then lets him know how insulting it is that Howard presumes she can't think for herself and that he has no idea who the real Jimmy is. And Howard, he just has to get the last word in as he leaves and says to Kim, you know who really knew Jimmy? Chuck. And boy, does that really piss her off that he says that. And this gives you I mean, I really took away from this is that because of their relationship at HHM, I don't know that Howard's ever going to be able to see Kim as an equal to him because that's not the relationship it was at HHM. And he has this hatred for Jimmy or and just something about their previous relationship. It just feels like Howard's too full of himself to ever see Kim as an equal, as a lawyer, and and is just still trying to, I don't know, control her life or demeans her or what have you. But uh, Kim's pissed at Howard, and I don't blame her. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is, so even if Howard is right, you never tell a person, especially a woman, that you can do better. Because you are just inviting to either be slapped in the face, yelled at, screamed at. Just don't do that. Just don't tell a woman that they can do better because it's just it – is, it is not your place uh, to say that. And my guess is that a female writer wrote that scene. I don't know that, that for a fact, but that would be my inclination uh, based on the tone and based on who we are supposed to sympathize with. Uh, it's – a great scene. There are a lot of really great scenes in this season involving Kim kind of standing up for herself and asserting herself and her agency. This is one of many. And we kind of build up to a big one toward the end of the season. But this is a really great one. And yeah, even if, again, I don't think Howard is necessarily wrong, but because of his previous behavior, like why would Kim trust him? Why would Kim embrace anything that he is saying because he never treated her as an equal or even as somebody who could potentially be a partner at that law firm. Exactly. I feel like she, a lot of people thought that she probably worked her way up to potentially being a partner, especially since there's a vacancy now and doesn't seem to be in the cards. And your your instincts, I think, are correct because the, the finale is where this happens and it's co-written by Peter Gould and, and Ariel Levine, uh, who is a female. So – I think you're you're dead on you're dead on there with uh, who helped to write this scene, um, and you know Howard's going to wish that a slap in the face is all that Kim was going to give for him because they're at this hotel, our Kim and Jimmy, and she is seething over these comments. And this is now like very early in the morning the next day, and they've been talking about like these kind of funny things they could do to Howard and. Kim's kind of both thinking about revenge on Howard plus cash flow income. And she remembers that there's this Sandpiper lawsuit that's so outstanding, which I believe we last left with that still being conferred by HHM and Davis and Maine. So if she were to force the resolution of the Sandpiper lawsuit, this would both sabotage and humiliate Howard. Jimmy would get his payout of seven figures and they would get a lot of money. And Jimmy is really shocked to hear Kim say all this. And he even questions her sincerity about, like, do you really, is this something you seriously want to do? And even tries to talk her out of it. She turns around and gives him the old finger guns. This is kind of where I talk about being worried about Kim. Is she 
too far down the path of dabbling in the dark side to turn things around and how long can she justify her means? So this was kind of a, a, a little bit of a hair standing on the back of my neck moment to end the season with Kim here with, with her in this headspace against Howard. So what you're really saying is Kim is ready to break bad. I, I can hear you putting on your sunglasses as you say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it really justifies Howard's existence over this season. Like, I think if they just had Howard in, in some of these moments, I don't think it necessarily was bad, but it just kind of wouldn't have gone anywhere. But now there's like this very clear purpose of we're going to go after the Sandpiper money and bringing it back. I mean, Sandpiper is something that has basically been around since the first couple seasons. And now we are returning to it all these all these seasons later. And I am very interested to see where this goes because I think it plays a lot into the show's endgame because it is a major source of income potentially for both Kim and Jimmy. But given we don't know Kim's status while Breaking Bad is going on, I think it raises some interesting questions about what happens uh, because of Sam Piper and because of what's happening with the uh, the drug uh, the drug part of this uh, series. But uh, that scene in the hotel is very good. Is it, that's the same hotel as the one that the White family stayed in in Breaking Bad? Correct. I think that's correct. Uh, it definitely looks similar visually and. Again, uh, the parallel structure of these shows, once again, you have the main characters having to check into a hotel uh, because they are being threatened by drug dealers. What a, Man, what a nice hotel. If that's a location shot, I really want to go to that hotel. Uh, maybe in the aftertime, when there's not a global pandemic, maybe that's a great idea. I bet that part of New Mexico is beautiful. And uh, uh, Giancarlo Esposito lives there, so maybe we could go there and say hi. Yeah, let's let's definitely do that. I'm sure he loves having visitors, like just random. And throw a pizza on a roof. I mean, that's a great idea. Pizza, you, I'll, you know what? You get the pizza. I'll get the bowling balls. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so now we're going to get into the big story of this 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 drug story, the the Fring Empire versus the Salamancas. At this point, they're kind of sharing product in a way. And Lalo's upset to discover that their product has been altered, which puts them in a bad situation, of course. And Gus tries to pin the blame on Werner, who you remember Lalo spoke to over the phone briefly in the season four finale, but never met. And he says that Werner stole part of their supply and replaced it with some locally acquired methamphetamine. And Lalo even gets to meet Mike for the first time, who's in charge of this staged construction thing that Gus has over at the chicken factory to throw Lalo off their scent of the real super lab. Because uh, Lalo, of course, heard about the lab on the phone with Werner. Lalo buys the story but remains very suspicious. And after a visit to Hector in the home, Lalo realizes if he wants Gus out of the picture, he needs to stop having him be a source of income for Don Eladio. So we're really just ramping up the family side of thing. It's the really freeing enterprises versus the Salamancas. And that's going to be how kind of a lot of the rest of the season plays out. That's kind of the, the main crux of it, along with those side stories we talked about. Throughout the season, I I definitely thought there was a chance that Nacho was going to bite it. I still think that's going to happen at some point. But the way that they were talking about him, he was talking a lot about leaving. He was talking <laughs> a lot about his father. And I was like, oh boy, this is not going to end well. All, all those same boxes you checked off for Werner, you're seeing again with Nacho here. It's true. Oh, but I think it was just it was it was really all there for me. And they just I, I guess they postponed it until season six. I guess so. Well, 
In talking about Nacho, again, he's a mole for Gus now. Gus tells him that he needs to make himself indispensable to Lalo to get as much information from him as possible. And they go to the point of threatening harm to Nacho's father in a pretty severe way. They drive him to this location to show him we know who your father is and we can kill him at any time. And obviously, Nacho doesn't like this, but what else can he do? And uh, he does end up gaining Lalo's trust by rescuing this stash during this really high-stakes drug bust where Domingo ends up getting caught, and there's cops all over the area, and he's jumping from roof to roof and all this stuff. And Lalo's sitting back and smiling and is really happy to see him uh, go through all this. So that's how he gets his trust, and that scene is very tense. But you mentioned to me that Lalo with Domingo during a card game commits a cardinal sin that makes you uh, maybe the worst thing Lalo does all season long. I mean, this is what made me turn heel on Lalo is so they're playing a poker game and it is revealed that Lalo bluffed his way to winning a Texas Hold'em hand of poker. He turns his cards over, which uh, that's not necessarily football. That's not necessarily the problem. What he does is then he grabs his opponent's cards throws them down on the already seen cards in Texas Hold'em. Kevin, this is a major sin. You are not supposed to tuck your opponent's cards or their chips, especially with a hand like that. There are certain situations, like a casino would ask you to leave. There are probably some situations where uh, that person may not be able to walk out of the room on their of their own volition for doing something like that so that is the scene that made me realize lalo's a dick <laughs> but it doesn't matter to you that this is how domingo gets his crazy eight nickname oh uh, well you know i mean poor domingo poor <laughs> domingo so <laughs> poor guy gets arrested for the dumbest reason <laughs> the dumbest reason ever he goes to jail he has interactions with people that we'll get to, I'm sure. Yes. And then we never see him again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is what it is. They just uh, completely forgot about poor Domingo. Well, before we get to Domingo, I want to go back to Nacho's father because there is this one scene where he comes to Nacho's home and says, hey, I've been made this really great offer for someone to buy the upholstery shop. It's more money than it's even worth. But then the tone shifts because his dad knows – this buyer was set up by Nacho using Nacho's own money so his father could get out of the way of his drug business. And he puts in Nacho's head that you need to decide if you should either flee or turn yourself into the police. Again, his father has, is not aware that Gus has a gun to his head. So he's just worried for Nacho's well-being, and Nacho really takes this to heart. Because, of course, he doesn't want to be associated with people who are holding his father hostage either. And the last thing he wants is for his dad to be collateral damage for stuff he does. So... Nacho's in a really tight spot here, uh, and this scene really highlights that point. It's just Jimmy. really depressing. It's really depressing that Nacho has to go through all of this, and he is so entangled in everything with Gus, with Lalo. Lalo is a very big personality. Gus is a very powerful individual, and he's basically stuck between these two people, and his father is seemingly trying to trying to behave like a like a Jiminy Cricket, like he's his conscience in a way, and there's just nothing he can do. Like he's so trapped that there's seemingly no way that he can get out of the situation because of just how powerful these people are. And again, I think we see just how dangerous the drug trade is represented throughout this series. And I think this season probably does the best job of showing that perspective. And I still don't think that 
I still think the nacho the nacho parts of it are not always the strongest because I think we are so invested in Jimmy, in Mike, in Kim that I think it's really hard to have Nacho be such an important player, especially when I think he's a good actor. But when you are when you are acting against Giancarlo Esposito, who has won Emmys for the role that he's playing, and is such an iconic person from Breaking Bad, and Tony Dalton, who is also very charismatic in his own right, and even if a lot of American audiences may not be familiar with his work, this is somebody who was a major telenovela star in Mexico. So he's got a lot of charisma. And I just think that part of the struggle is that the, the actor who plays Nacho is just not as charismatic as these other two actors. And I think that's part of where I have some trouble investing. And I think the writers are doing their best uh, to to make Nacho sympathetic, especially those scenes with his father. But I think this is the part of the series that I've always struggled with the most. I can I definitely see that. You know, if you're he he would be one of the better actors on any other show, but unfortunately, he's on Better Call Saul. Uh, but it also makes you wonder: is because he's so subdued, is there going to be this ticking time bomb moment in season six where he figuratively or maybe literally explodes? Uh, we know that that is definitely a thing that happens with drug dealers in the Breaking Bad universe. Sometimes they go boom. It's true. It's true that they do. But now Nacho has to take care of Domingo in prison, so he naturally recruits Saul to take care of this and introduces him to Lalo in the process. That's a great scene with the two of them in that garage meeting for the first time. That's very tense and just amazing stuff from Bob Odenkirk and Tony Dalton there. But because of the nature of Domingo's arrest and because it involves drugs – He's interviewed by the DEA, which leads to the return of Hank Schrader and Steve Gomez. Were you expecting them? Were you surprised? Were you happy to see them? What what was your feeling when you saw Hank Schrader slapping his ID on that window to be let in? And then Gomez right behind him. This was definitely an element of the show that got spoiled for me. So I knew that Hank was in season five. Yeah. What a bummer. I did. I'm I'm not so concerned. Like usually, guest star stuff doesn't bother me as much. If plot elements get spoiled, that's where I really kind of get pissy. But I, I'm I'm honestly just glad that I didn't know what happened in the final episode. So at least I had that going for me. Uh, but yes, I did know I did know that Hank was going to be on, and it was still exciting because it's Hank Trader and he's great. And even though we got you know a couple scenes with him and Steven, it was great to see them bantering back and forth. It was great to see them talking with each other. I like that they really focused on the job. I am so glad that the writers did not feel this temptation to wink at the audience by having Hank either reference Walter White or his wife or any other character in the Breaking Bad universe. I'm glad that they just kept it focused to the storyline and more specifically to what was happening in the interrogation room because uh, the interplay between Hank and Jimmy has always been great and it was even more pronounced here because now we've seen a lot more of Jimmy's perspective. So it uh, it just worked out so well. See, he mentions Marie though. Are you not going to count her as a main character, I guess? I mean, he does mention Marie, but it's not done in this like – it's done in a more casual way. It's not done in this like winking – fashion or this like really goofy way of doing things like i think mentioning his wife is perfectly acceptable because it's his wife but if he mentions walter then then that's where i kind of draw right who who brings up their brother-in-law that often in conversation yeah 
So outside I think bringing, of the up Murray, bringing up Murray is acceptable. Okay. Well, and that it's interesting you say that because this is this is the first meeting of Saul and with Hank and Gomez, and the first time we see them chronologically. And I believe between this and Breaking Bad, with the exception of Marie, he will have interacted with every single main character. But there are some seasons where you can argue she's not a main character. So, but that's that was our old podcast. We talked about that a little bit. And you mentioned the banter. That's one thing that they they talked about how those scenes that are just banter are the hardest to write because a lot of scenes there, you know, there's purpose or intention behind them, but just writing, you know, banter for the sake of banter is hard. And it reminded me of like the Royale with cheese scene, the, from Pulp Fiction, the, the like a virgin discussion leading in the, I don't tip discussion on reservoir dogs. And even what did you like better empire versus Jedi from clerks? I love banter, Jerome. It's just something I I realize I love banter in my movies and TV shows. Well, I think especially in TV shows because, you know, TV shows, you're spending so much time with these characters that I think having those banter scenes are important. I think with movies, I think directors and certain writers can get away with it. I think certain others cannot. But I think when it comes to a movie like Clerks, I think that is generally – some of the most well-remembered stuff from that movie because there was a time when pop culture was not as prominent on the internet and nerd culture was not as prominent. So I think a scene like that in 1994 really sticks out. In 2020, it probably doesn't. Same for the tipping conversation, same for a lot of what Tarantino does. And But I still think having any level of banter, I think it works because you're just trying to make people invested in these characters. I think... Part of what a TV show is, especially one that is released on a weekly basis, is you are spending 40 to 45 minutes with these people. And I think part of the goal is, even if you don't like them, around them for 45, 50 minutes to an hour. Otherwise, again, your show is going to become homework. So if you want to avoid that, then you have scenes like this. You have Jimmy throwing bowling balls. You have... Uh, Jimmy and his, and his shenanigans in the nail salon when he's directing the random actors. You have him slapping lawsuits left and right while showing them commercials. Those are the ways that you actually make the show engaging, even if it's not having to do with a storyline, quote-unquote. You are at least keeping people interested and engaged beyond just, I want to find out whether Nacho lives or dies. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I just, I just love that stuff. It adds just so much depth to the characters, these conversations. So it's it's the best. And I love seeing Mike and Gomi again. That's something else that they talk about is like it's so hard because they get a lot of fans who act like, who are you bringing back from Breaking Bad and stuff? A lot of times they'll be like, well, anyone in the kind of like the stock answer is just like anyone is in play. But like, do not expect Jesse and Walt to come back in this show because they don't want to say like no one's going to come back. But they also don't want to say like, yes, there's going to be characters. People think like, oh, my God, here comes Walter White and Jesse and all this other stuff. So and the other thing, too, is, you know, Hank and, and Gomez are only in this season for two episodes. So if you tell people Hank and Gomez are coming back, you're thinking like, oh, my God, they're going to be the heart and soul of season five. And it just doesn't work that way. They're they're being used in a spot where it makes sense to use them. And when it doesn't, they're done. And I think that's a perfect use of them, but you know how fandoms can be Jerome. Are you, are you saying that some fandoms are bad? I'm saying maybe all fandoms are bad. I have always felt that better call Saul in so many ways. I think, I think the way that they've written Kim, whether it's conscious or unconscious, I think they have gone out of their way 
to make sure that she is not seen in the same light as Skylar White. Oh, I 100% agree. And so what Jimmy does here for Domingo is they prep this kind of play to present to the DEA that ultimately reduces to Domingo giving up drug drop zones. And if they lead to an arrest, he gets off scot-free and will serve it as an informant to the DEA. And what unfortunately happens is, is that Gus has to take some hits in his business for this to come to come to fruition. And he does. They give up their drug drop zones. Hank and Gomez follow to them. They recover $700,000. They end up busting three men. Hank's unhappy that it's not some of the bigger dealers, but they celebrate anyways. And that, that gets them off their back for now. And that's the last you see the DA from here. And Domingo's gone and you don't see him again. And what's really important about the scene with Hank and Gomez is you see Gus back at Pollos Hermanos very anxiously awaiting this phone call from Victor telling him everything went off without a hitch. And his poor anxieties are taken out on poor Lyle, one of the uh, the managers on hand at Pollos Hermanos. And just the scene of them going after the drug dealer and Gus waiting for the phone call and Lyle literally rubbing his hands raw to make it clean to Gus's standards. It's I, f- I felt for poor Lyle here. Uh, Lyle gets uh, abused. And this is the first time that we've seen Gus kind of go after a civilian. He usually does not pour, put himself forward in this way as this kind of angry perfectionist. But you definitely see it here. Now, in watching this scene, I was having trouble deciphering, was Gus just overly panicky about the drug situation and he's taking it out on Lyle? Or is Lyle just not doing a good job of cleaning? It's it's definitely the former. It this is this is Gus's way of dealing with his anxiety. Like it doesn't feel Gus's character to have like this outburst or anything like that. He's just needling and abusing in a way the only person he can that he knows he can at that time. It's somebody who wants Gus's attention and respect and appreciation. He'll stay there after hours for no extra money just to make sure it's it's clean enough to Gus's standards and that that's that's Gus's evil way of, of releasing his tension. I can only think of squeaky voice team whenever I see Lyle. I just can't help myself. <laughs> Here you go, Mr. Frank. <laughs> no, I want to see that scene. And, <laughs> it's got uh, Mike does indeed rejoin Gus's operation, and he's made the ambassador to Nacho through Gus. And they realize that we need to get rid of Lalo, send him back over the border in order for business to turn around. So we get P.I. Mike back. I love when Mike goes full P.I. here. He goes to the library because that's where the only witness at the scene of the money wiring agent uh, was from the end of last season. You may remember Lalo shoot a woman away who knocks at the door trying to conduct some business after he's killed off the employee. And Mike convinces her that she remembers seeing Lalo's car at the agency and has her call Detective Roberts, who we saw in Breaking Bad. He was there a couple times. I remember the big one was he came to interview Skyler when Walt went missing, and I think he turned up in the grocery store naked. But he's seen a couple times over there. He's a, a partner to Hank. And this ends up leading to Lalo's arrest and imprisonment until trial. And once again, Saul is called to represent him. So like seeing Detective Roberts again. Love when Mike gets to be the fake PI in these scenes. Uh, so I like how this all came together and that they – like. That throwaway thing of there being a, a technically a witness at the wiring agency comes back together here later in the season. I loved it. I love it when a plan comes together, right? Yes, it's the best. So Lalo tells Saul, you need to get me out on bail, which is very hard to do in a murder case, I'm sure. 
And this is also what Mike, Nacho, and Gus all wants, as even from prison, not, uh, he's still giving Nacho orders because he was able to get a cell phone, including burning down one of Gus's Pollos Hermanos restaurants, which, again, Gus allows to happen to, to keep up appearances. Meanwhile, Gus meets with Madrigal CEO Peter, who we again see briefly in Breaking Bad, and Lydia once again, updating them on the Super Lab and calming Peter's nerves. Uh, and we all remember Peter is the CEO who committed suicide in a bathroom after Gus's murder. The DEA investigations begin. Good to see him again. And good to see a little bit of a, a role reversal with Gus here, as a lot of people have to not talk Gus down, but they have to convince him sometimes things are OK or convince him to go one way or the other. And kind of the roles are reversed as Gus is talking to his boss when and a lot of scenes Gus is the boss himself. And I think it also makes, again, clear just how involved Madrigal is with the drug business. And I think it, it, this really addresses the corporatization of the drug trade and what they're going for. Like the way it comes off to me is that Lalo and Nacho, like, yes, it's drugs, but it's kind of a family operation. Like it's kind of a mom and pop store. And Gus is kind of representing this giant corporation that is coming in and trying to take over things. And again, with the idea that it is drugs, I mean, this is still a reality for so many small businesses that they have to compete with the likes of a Walmart or Target or a lot of these big box stores. And it, it really puts these independent stores uh, at a significant disadvantage. So I like that we again got that here. And we, of course, know that Madrigal is involved. But just to see that scene, to have Gus interacting with Peter and just talking openly about it in a hotel room uh, just really shows – just how deep this goes and how high up it goes. And I think there are definitely some shows that would, that would follow this angle all the way to the top. And I'm glad this show is not doing that, but you could definitely see a scenario where you have a season of television where investigators and prosecutors are going after this international corporation and, and seeing just who else is involved. Kevin, I have to be honest with you. I just want to know if the Luftwaffle guy is involved. This is the backstory you want. This is the webisodes you want. Yes, I want the aloof. Is it like the German version of Waffle House? I beats me, man. But it sounds really good. I mean, uh, it sounds incredible. I love waffles. Uh, and those curly fries looked real darn good, too. If that didn't make you want to go to Arby's and get curly fries, <laughs> then I don't know what to tell you. And um, let me be clear. I am very much anti-Arby's except curly fries. Yeah, dude. There's a lot of people who feel that way. They're, they're damn good curly fries. I'll also stick up for their mocha shake, too. It's very good. This is making me really hungry, by the way. <laughs> I know. What? Well, I'm sorry. I know this. We're, we're going long here, folks. There's a lot to, to dig into in this season. So, again, they want Lala out of jail, uh, and they need to get bail. So what they do is Mike informs Jimmy that he tampered with the witness that led to Lalo's arrest. So this revelation results in the judge giving Lalo the option of bail, but at a very steep $7 million in cash. And Lalo tells Saul that you're going to go get the money for me. It's also worth mentioning here that Jimmy is like, really bothered by the fact that Lalo can't even remember the name of the individual he killed at the money wiring agency, nor is he bothered whatsoever by seeing his very somber family in the courtroom. So if you don't think Lalo's a bad guy yet, I think this really uh, put a pin in it. I, you know, if, if the poker thing didn't really set you over the edge, of course. Yeah. Some people respond more to family, which all right, fine, whatever. Uh, but so here's what I was wondering about bail. Do they do they actually have to pay all seven million dollars? I thought it was where you paid like ten percent or something of the bail money. 
I'm I'm not going to pretend like I know, uh, you know, anything about bail or law. Like I've, I've very fortunately been not in that system ever in my life up to this point. And I'm knocking on my wooden desk here. Uh, but I think obviously in this case, like $7 million in cash is, is, is it's like a, almost like a joke bail. Like there's no way you're going to make this. Uh, but they don't know the nature of Lalo and all that stuff. So if, if that's the case, maybe the true bail was $70 million. Who's to say? I don't, I don't have, you know, you know who would know Robert Forrester's character from Jackie Brown would know. That's true. He would know. He would know that. Uh, RIP. So here we are, Jerome. Bagman. This is our section just dedicated to Bagman. Uh, shot into Hajali, which is where the pilot of Breaking Bad and some final moments of Breaking Bad were shot, including the last ever thing that they shot, which was the the flashback in Ozymandias when Walt and Jesse are cooking in the desert. And they shot this in July where weather wavered between 100 and 105 degrees. So really grueling conditions for the cast and crew in shooting Bagman. Actually, at the start of the episode, we get to see the twins again, getting the $7 million into a couple duffel bags and driving up to Mexico to the meeting spot with Jimmy that Lalo gave him. And I think the last time we saw them was in that firefight uh, after they took Nacho to Dr. Caldera, that great scene from last season. Jimmy also informs Kim of what he's doing, and she's rightfully terrified that he's involved with these but the, these gangsters and Jimmy plays it cool, telling her it's going to be easy. Just driving up, driving back, right? Well, not so much because Jimmy gets the money from the twins. No problem. But on his way back, he's stopped by rival gang members held at gunpoint. This results in a firefight, lots of death. But fortunately, Mike had followed him out into the desert and was able to use his snipes, sniping skills to get rid of uh, everybody except for one of the ambushers who drives away. And this leaves Jimmy in a, a state of shock. And really most of the episode is Jimmy and Mike trudging through the desert. Jimmy getting this really harsh reality check about what being a friend of the cartel means. And uh, Mike tells Jimmy that he does what he does to make sure his everybody in his life is taken care of. They have no idea what he does. They never will. And if I live or die, it really doesn't matter to me as long as I know these people in this life have what I need. And that's what it takes for him to keep going. Uh, and it's, it's knowing he did everything he could for them. And it's really in a lot of ways, Mike telling Jimmy that, you know, a lot of times telling the truth may sound good, but there are reasons to lie. At least that's what the, I think. Cause he learns that Jimmy has told Kim about what he's doing. And Mike's trying to explain to him, well, here's why you really can't do that. I think this is a really important episode, and I think that's probably an understatement, specifically because they are building up the Mike-Saul relationship, and it's something we've seen them have their little interactions, but it has come across as being very antagonistic at times. In this episode, they are showing them, I'm not going to say they're friends, but I'm saying that they at least are able to come to some sort of an understanding I think Jimmy understands that Mike essentially saved his life. So I think that there is a respect that has formed and developed because of what happens in Bagman. And this is probably an episode that was much needed if we are to understand kind of how they function in Breaking Bad to where they have a very professional but cordial relationship and to where I think you would want to know how does Mike work for Jimmy or how does how does Mike work for Saul? And I think this episode 
in subtle ways, kind of answers that question. It is not beating you over the head. It's not somebody giving Han Solo his name by saying the word Solo because he's traveling by himself. There's there's at least a very good reason that that just shows you kind of the difference in 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 care between certain filmmakers and certain writers and and the way things are done. I uh, I just have a tremendous appreciation for the way that they bring these two characters together in the desert where they are relying on each other to survive. And I, I just loved it. I think this was probably the best episode of better call Saul. One of the best episodes that has ever taken place in this universe. And it's not a plot heavy episode. It is mainly about uh, the character development, of course. And I also like that Jimmy at the end, you know, he's beaten battered and he decides to take one of those uh, blankets and reflectors to try to, serve as bait so Mike could take him out. And I think Mike thought that took a lot of gumption and guts. So like you said, this is a lot of respect building between the two of them because you're right. There's a lot of times in Breaking Bad, you're like, why on earth would this guy work for a guy like Saul Goodman? And I think uh, he sees that deep down Saul has what it takes to to do what it takes and has uh, has some grit in him. And I think he respects that. Well, and uh, I think Jimmy also is in a situation where, you know, even though the match, the marriage is kind of done for transactional reason, like he really does love Kim. And I, I, the marriage undoubtedly plays a role in that because they, they sort of are their own little family unit now. So I think that's also important. And as I think we get to in the next episode, when Jimmy talks about like what would happen to Kim or if something would happen to Kim, like what that would do to him. Like, I think that's also an important part of this episode too. Right. Well, and, and this is the episode where Kim makes the very dangerous decision to go to the prison and ask Lalo for Jimmy's location, letting him know, I know who you are. I know what you're doing. I know you're involved with my husband. And now Lalo knows who she is and is made aware of her relationship with Jimmy. So uh, that kind of sucks and was a very bold and perhaps uh, not the best choice for her to make. But I get it. She's she's scared out of her wits. I mean, Egon once said in Ghostbusters, don't cross the streams and – she decided to cross the streams and it's not going to end well for her. No, it is not. So after Bagman episode nine, we get a really awesome reprise of the, the another dual Jim and Kimmy montage with another version of something stupid playing over it. But this time Jimmy's still in the desert and Kim is worried sick about him back at home. And finally, Jimmy gets a signal on his cell phone and gets to call Kim and tell her she's okay. And boy, the sigh of relief that she gives. I mean, if she doesn't love Jimmy, she's, all these little things show you that there is real love in their relationship. So Jimmy and Mike get picked up by Victor and Tyrus and Mike corroborates a story for Jimmy to tell Lalo. So he is not aware Mike was with him. Jimmy turns in the cash. Lalo's released and plans to go to Mexico and hide because he was there under an alias and he'll be long gone before they can figure that out. And Jimmy's story simply implies that he had car trouble and had to take the circuitous route back to, in order to not be caught, which again, Lalo doesn't necessarily buy, but Whatever the deal's done. Jimmy is sunburnt to hell, dehydrated, and still shell-shocked from the altercation. Jimmy doesn't tell Kim the whole story. He's kind of telling her the same story that Lalo does, but she knows he's lying because she finds his world's second best lawyer again travel mug with a bullet hole through it in his bag of cash. And I do like here that Kim doesn't doesn't yell at him or get mad about, you promised or you did all this. It's just later she tells Jimmy, hey, I know you're not telling me the whole story because I saw this, but... I just want you to know that I care about you. I love you. And you can tell me this. And I think that's such a great approach that Kim takes because she sees just how 
the state Jimmy is in and how like yelling and arguing right now is not the right approach to take. And he may also be suffering from PTSD because uh, he had to destroy his beloved car after all these years and after all these episodes. Yeah, uh, it's finally gone. You say goodbye the, to the Suzuki esteem. May it oh, rest in peace. Oh, and let's mention here, we're talking about symbols and stuff with Nacho. How about uh, Kim and Orange is here in this episode? Yep, I definitely noticed that. <laughs> uh, the Oranges are are such a huge part of the Godfather series. As I mentioned, clearly fans of the Godfather. I have mentioned before, there is no possible way that Quentin Tarantino did not influence this crew. When I saw Jimmy and Mike at the beginning of episode nine, I was definitely getting those Samuel Jackson and John Travolta <laughs> from Pulp, Pulp Fiction vibes. Right. I have to believe you were too. Because they, yes, I did. Because they got those new clothes that are total clashes with at least Mike's character from from that convenience store. A hundred percent. I don't see got, Mike wearing flip flops. No, I definitely got my Vincent Vega, Jules Winfield vibes from them. Absolutely. And oranges being a Godfather thing. See, I thought it was just a Ted Beneke thing. Oh, Kevin, now, now I just want to put the gif up for everyone to see <laughs> the greatest gif of all time. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good one. So <laughs> so Mike goes to, to Gus and tells him what really happened. And also that they find out that the gang that was sent was sent by Juan Bolsa, who works for Donald Audio, and it was to protect Gus's business. But Mike, Mike also brings up here that, look, Nacho wants out. He wants to stop serving as our informant. And I think it can be arranged. He's done everything we asked. And Lalo's going to be south of the border soon, thanks to his aide. And much to Mike's chagrin, Gus denies the request, which really rubs Mike the wrong way as they, again, know that they have Nacho's father cornered. And I think between this and what he tried to do with, with Werner last season and tells him, like, look, I don't think Werner meant any harm. I really think he's not going to speak and just talk to his wife. I think we can just take him back. And Gus more or less says, no, you need to kill him. You're maybe seeing Mike's patience wear thin with Gus here a little bit. And I think Mike is somebody who I think his experience as a police officer, you know, say what you will about cops and stuff. I think Mike has very good instincts about people. And I don't think if he didn't really trust Werner and if he really didn't trust Nacho to be compliant and not say anything, he would tell Gus that same thing. But I think he has a good judge of character and a good head on his shoulders that if he goes to Gus and says, I think we can trust these guys. I don't think you have anything to worry about. If I'm Gus, I would listen to him. I understand where Gus is coming from, but I do think Mike is, is like maybe like the only person I would ever trust with stuff like this. Yeah, I would I would certainly agree with that. And it is um, just the interactions that Mike and Gus have in this show in particular are 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 really excellent. And it's it's really great. I don't think we got a lot of scenes with Giancarlo Esposito and Jonathan Banks, just them together in Breaking Bad, just because the nature of that show was not about those characters as much. So I'm glad that we're kind of making up for it, and not in a fan service kind of way, but in like a legitimate, like, you have to build these characters up and, and show the relationship and show how Mike slowly kind of becomes more integrated into their system and how Gus uh, basically becomes a, an increasingly powerful person and... I mean, we kind of know where it's going. We know that both men are not going to survive this war ultimately. But we do know that they are going to ascertain a lot of power over the course of the next few years at least because this show at this point in season five is in 2004 and the events of Breaking Bad are in 2008. So we certainly know that they are going to be around for a while uh, kind of running roughshod over the, over the drug scene in Albuquerque. 
Yeah, totally. Uh, and with the drug scene, we have uh, Nacho taking Lalo to say goodbye to Hector in the nursing home. And I know this isn't like the most important scene in the world or anything, but I love Lalo's reaction to seeing uh, him in the nursing home and the nurse taking him to go say happy birthday and telling him how much he hates to miss those. And Lalo's face is just like, what has this drug kingpin become? Very humorous to me. Oh, yes. Very uh, good stuff. So, unfortunately for Jimmy, on the way to their drop-off point, Lalo has Nacho stop because he notices Jimmy's car, and oops, it's covered in bullet holes. So Lalo immediately has Nacho taken back to Albuquerque, and we get this scene, which is basically a, like a 17-minute one-act play at the end of Season 9, which begins with Kim telling Jimmy about leaving Schweikert and Coakley, which this really like snaps Jimmy out of his funk and gets him back to being normal Jimmy again. Jimmy trying to be like, this isn't a good idea. What about money? Blah, blah, blah. And he's getting this phone call he keeps hanging up on. But finally, their doorbell rings and Kim goes off. So he answers the phone. And it's a call from Mike who tells Jimmy, Lalo's coming. Keep me on the line and put the phone somewhere where Lalo can't find me. And this leads to this very tense scene where Lalo makes his way inside. He makes Jimmy repeat his story about what happened in the desert several times. Eventually revealing to Jimmy that he found his car with bullet holes in it. And this is when Kim finally speaks up. He tells Lalo it's probably shot up for fun. She's really mad at him for not trusting Jimmy, who, by the way, completed your mission successfully and that you need to get your shit together and get your house together. And you see during Kim's speech that Mike has set up his sniper rifle on a roof just in case things got hairy. And ultimately, Lalo leaves and instructs Nacho to take him back to Mexico, but not at their original meeting site. And while this scene was awesome and tense, like, I basically watched and thought, they want us to think Kim's about to die here. That is certainly the vibe they give off, and probably the best scene in season five. It's unbelievable to me that they were able to execute this scene the way they did by having Kim speak up for the both of them. And... You know, Jimmy and Jimmy slash Saul is kind of shell-shocked and still suffering and dealing with the repercussions of what happened in Bagman. So he really doesn't have the energy, it seems, to speak up for himself or the wherewithal. And it's Kim who kind of steps up to the plate. And it's a very powerful moment because this isn't something that we've seen in other iterations. It's always Jimmy speaking for himself or on Breaking Bad, it was always – it was always uh, Walt, and even in El Camino, it was always Jesse uh, speaking up for himself. So to have Kim uh, step up to the plate here, I mean, this is this is kind of the Emmy speech. Like, if Ray Seahorn were nominated for the Emmys, this is probably they would show a snippet of this scene or the one with Howard because it's it's a really important acting moment for her, just because you know she has the agency to to step up to the plate. She knows Jimmy. Uh, well enough, and she at least is cursory aware of who Lalo is. So I just think that it is a it is a well acted scene. It's a well directed scene because we also get Mike uh, <laughs> on a rooftop ready to snipe Lalo at any point if things go south. There is definitely a possibility of Kim dying. I mean, I think that's something that absolutely could have happened in in that moment because we know that. There is a, you know, there is a season six, but no character is safe. And it was, uh, it was a very good tease. But to have Kim stand up for herself and to survive that moment, I think is really important. Yeah. 
Because you're thinking the whole time, could Lalo just like stab her shooter or is Mike going to accidentally shoot her with a sniper rifle in? She survives. You get a, a, a sigh of relief. But of course, it's a she survives for now kind of thing. This is like I feel like the last three seasons, Kim's got a, a big WTF is your problem scene. It was Chuck in season three. It was Howard in season four when she's telling him about you know guilt tripping Jimmy in a little ways. And now he gets to hear with Lalo and she does fantastic in them all the time. Uh, but this one's definitely the most tense and uh, of all of them. So what happens is Kim and Jimmy leave and check into a hotel just in case Lalo or someone else come back. Uh, and Jimmy tells her the truth about the Bagman escapade. He's also wondering why Mike is protecting him because we have the desert and now this. And so while Kim's at the courthouse and has her encounter with Howard, Jimmy goes to Mike's house demanding answers. And it's at this time Mike tells Jimmy a plan is in motion for Lalo to be killed that night. And Jimmy tells Kim this back at the hotel, and they're both relieved. They think, we don't have to worry about Lalo Salamanca anymore. And uh, the plan is set in motion as Nacho is spending the night at Lalo's Hacienda in Chihuahua, which is a free and sovereign state within Mexico coordinates. And although cell phone service is very bad, he gets a call from an unknown number saying that you're to open the back gate at 3 a.m. to let in the assassins. And later that day... Lalo introduces Nacho to Don Eladio as the man who's going to run the Salamanca business back in New Mexico. And Don Eladio accepts this after he is impressed by Nacho's expansion plan. And I did. I like this scene a lot, too, because you see that uh, and I understand he's doing it to justify the means. But Lalo being a bit of a kiss ass to Don Eladio by gifting him the car and giving him a little bit of extra money on top of their cut and all this stuff. It's like everybody's got a boss to answer to somewhere. And uh Everybody has to, I guess, in that world has to do a little bit of a boot licking and ass kissing sometimes. I mean, sometimes I get the impression that Lalo is kind of the, the whereas k- kind of Jimmy is one side of the coin. I think Lalo, in a lot of ways, is the other side of the coin because I think they, they have very similar bombastic personalities. And whereas Jimmy's trying to be good, I think Lalo's just kind of trying to um, get away with chicanery and whatnot. But I definitely see a lot in common between those two. And I think this moment that you described with the car and with the money just really shows just how much of a a people pleaser he can be when he wants to be. And even though he is this very evil person, like we, we, this also shows us an understanding of Lalo also knows where his bread is buttered. And if he wants to retain power, if he wants to, I don't know, stay alive, then he's got to keep certain people happy. And he does that uh, in this moment. And uh, it's a really good one. Tony Dalton is very good. And this episode also leads to one of the all-time great gifts in the history of the Breaking Bad universe, (laughs) of which Tony Dalton as Lalo has two of them. Kevin, go ahead. You mean with him? I know one's rolling down the window. Yes, the the rolling down the window in this particular scene is a big one. Is the is the other one him poking down the head into the into the crawl space? Yes. Okay. Good. Him coming out of the crawl space because I remember when they announced that Tony Dalton was uh, announced as being cast for Hawkeye. That is the gift that you sent. <laughs> Fantastic. That's a good one because it's not like a major spoiler because you're like I don't know that you could have pieced together what was going on just from seeing that. Yeah. So what does go on? Well, here we are, the end of the season. Unfortunately for Nacho, Lalo is a night owl, and he's enjoying some tequila by the back gate when he goes outside close to 3 a.m. to open the gate. So he's got to sit there and have some conversation, enjoy some drinks. And uh, what Nacho is like, well, crap, I got to get him out of here. So he sets a kitchen fire, like you get put some oil in a pan, sets the stovetop. 
And he goes to get more booze and brings it back out. And the smoke from inside distracts Lalo and gets him to go inside. So Nacho lets in the assassin and he makes himself scarce. So through very careful movements in an underground tunnel uh, from the bathroom, Lalo manages to escape, goes back in and kills everybody. However, the last assassin he makes call to whoever the middleman was in charge of the hit to let them know that the attack went off without a hitch. And Lalo notices Nacho is gone and he briskly walks away from the house as the credits roll. So we end this season with everybody back in New Mexico thinking Lalo is dead and he is very much alive. And now Lalo is a horror villain because he's going to come back. Yeah, uh, like old country from old man type villain vibes going on here. But and we got one more season to go. But who the hell knows when we're going to see it? And so this is the cliffhanger. We have to hang our hats on with this and Kim talking about this plan to thwart Howard and. It just makes me all sad all over again that COVID-19 has put season six into this uh, this state of being delayed. And allegedly it's going to be filming in March or so. But, you know, who really knows? And admittedly, that is not the biggest. That's not the most important concern when it comes to COVID-19. But certainly uh, for what we are doing here, it is unfortunate <laughs> that we are going to have to relate that we're going to have to wait months, if not a year or more. Uh, to put a bow on top of the show. So I mentioned the show Narcos before. The ending scene of episode 10 definitely gave me a lot of Narcos vibes because there are some very similar scenes uh, that take place with people invading uh, drug dealers' homes and trying to kill people. So I was definitely getting those vibes. Just, again, another... I I think the writing on this show is, is always consistently fantastic, but even just from a directorial standpoint, this is probably the best directed show uh, on television. It, it always feels cinematic. It very rarely feels like it's quote unquote, just a television show. So I, I'm just tremendously impressed with the execution of the final scene and the way that they edited that scene versus the versus Kim and Jimmy in the hotel, because part of the dichotomy that's presented is, is a lot of the focus and a lot of the action is with Lalo and the main characters have kind of already had their like quote unquote season finale moment basically at the end of episode nine. So I think I think that's they they could have struggled with that, but I think they did a good job of kind of balancing it. And we kind of know in season ten where we're going and or season six. But I think that the uh, I think you put it really good, and I'm gonna let I'll let you describe it. But there is there is a big difference between kind of how the first seven seven episodes are presented versus the final three. Yeah, I think the first seven episodes, like when I was doing notes for this, I was just like, how am I going to break this down in like a, a coherent way? Because there's just a lot going on, a lot of stuff that where everyone's intertwined, but then a bunch of stuff where they're not. And then it feels like the last three episodes, they really slow things down. They really focus on just a couple big characters and scenes and moments. But those moments hit really hard. They're really well acted. They're really well done and a lot of attention and cares to them. So while the last three episodes may be the least dense in terms of plot, the plot that does take place is super important and they really lay on the drama and tension in those episodes. And like you give me episodes eight, nine and ten, those can be they, they stand out to me as some of the best episodes of the series. But like individually, they would be like the best episodes of any show, period. Like they're just that good. They're so well written, directed. You could tell there's so much 
attention to detail and care put in here. You mentioned that you thought it was the best season. I would have to agree. I still think Chicanery from season three is my favorite episode. Uh, but man, like this this whole season as a collective is just so unbelievable. And I have to ask you, you told me a couple weeks ago that Alan Seppenwall's list came out and said that Better Call Saul, he felt, was the best show in 2020. Now, I'm very behind on my television watching in general, but you tend to do better in keeping up with stuff like you've seen The Boys and Mandalorian and all that stuff. Do you agree with Mr. Seppenwall? I would certainly say that it is good. And, and I'm actually going to be putting a, together a list of my top favorite kind of movies and TV shows. So I'm going to be kind of divide. I've already divided those lists up and better call Saul is certainly going to be at the top of the list. I don't know if it's going to be number one, but it is definitely going to be in the top three. I also wonder if in speaking to the Emmys and the, the COVID and stuff, like I wonder if just recency bias really hurt it. Cause again, like it wrapped up in April and this year, more than any other year, April seems like it could be 16 years ago. So I just wonder if people uh, it's funny you mentioned that, that because specifically a lot of networks and streamers will release their best shows around April and May because you have to have a certain number. There certain numbers of episodes have to be aired by June first, I think, in order to qualify for that year's Emmys. So that's why a lot of shows you will see a lot of shows coming out around March and April. But I think it may be in terms of just I'm thinking like the discussion of like. Not necessarily awards, but just like websites and stuff like that. I think people kind of forgot about Better Call Saul even happening this year. I think so. I mean, undoubtedly, the pandemic probably affected it in that way. I, I don't know. I still think there's something about just people are not paying attention to what AMC is airing on a Monday night. True. Too. I think that's that's a huge part of it. Um, you know, I think people associate AMC as still the the Walking Dead network. I think there are a lot of people who, just like they watch Breaking Bad on Netflix, they watch Better Call Saul on Netflix, and I think that may have hurt it. AMC may not be promoting Better Call Saul like they should, <laughs> even though it's one of the best shows on television, um, because they don't they don't have an ownership stake. Even though they are airing it, they don't have an ownership stake in it. Sony owns the show, and there is a lot of increasing um willingness by networks they want to keep all of their own stuff so they want to have their own studios produce content for their own studios and basically everything else goes by the wayside and you know sony is one of the few independent distributors that still exists you know they have the they have breaking bad they produce jeopardy wheel of fortune but they also produce something like one day at a time, and they I think they're really struggling because Sony does not have a streaming service like so many of these other places. So I don't know if that directly plays a part in it, but undoubtedly AMC is not going to be as invested in shows that are not on their network uh, as opposed to shows that – like The Walking Dead, which they clearly have a lot of investment in. And I'm sure that they are very happy to still have – Better Call Saul because Breaking Bad is one of the reasons that AMC became an important cable network. Unfortunately, they are increasingly going away from that, and a lot of your linear cable stations are going away from original programming. I mean, they still got screwed. I want to be clear. Breaking oh, for sure. Better Call Saul should have been nominated for multiple Emmys, not just for drama, but for Bob Odenkirk, for Ray Seahorn, maybe even for Jonathan Banks. I mean, they should be nominated. They should just make the Better Call Saul Awards, and that's – I mean it's that good. It's just that I mean, good, people. 
I really wish that they would divide the Emmys, and it would be so complicated and dense to do this, but to have three categories, broadcast, cable, streaming, I think that would be so much better. If you are doing a TV show for a broadcast network, your job is is completely different than your, if you're writing a show for break, than if you're writing an episode of Breaking Bad. Like your job is just 100%. fundamentally different. Yes, for sure. Well, with all that said, is there anything from season five I did not discuss that you want to be sure to mention before we get into predictions? I cannot. I don't really have it. I think we covered a lot of the major stuff. I think that we covered – I mean this podcast is probably going to go almost three hours long at this point. And this was so, me trying to keep it down to its bare necessities and here we are. Are you going to start singing the song from Jungle Book? No, that- no, I am not. <laughs> I'm just – I'm dropping all these musical references and I think Kevin's a little stunned right now. Season five is is really good. It's the best season. It's probably one of the best shows of 2020. And they just really elevated Ray Seahorn to another level. And I just, it is amazing to me that Ray Seahorn is just having her moment now when she is almost 50 years old. And why was it she on other TV shows and movies? Like, what the hell, man? Like, it is, it's retroactively aggravating to know that she was not getting good roles prior to this. Yeah, and that's just how it works out sometimes, man. It's weird. Like, I mean, we talk about how Giancarlo Esposito was in like what Let the Right One In like nineteen eighty nine, and yeah. now and now look how it took twenty one years later. Thirty, I'm sorry, thirty one years later. Here he is. He in just twenty twenty alone, he got to be on Better Call Saul, one of the most respected prestige television shows, The Boys, which is critically acclaimed as being you know one of these best like alt superhero shows on on Amazon Prime right now. And he's part of the Disney family in Star Wars and Mandalorian. Like, who's had a better year than Giancarlo Esposito in the entertainment world in 2020? I mean, and Billy Joel has had a very good year. There's like three different TV shows that have referenced his songs. So he's probably made all of the money, including The Boys and The Crown, which are two of the most popular shows in the world. Well, I grew up on Billy Joel because my dad plays piano. So that's A-OK with me. Yeah, um, a lot of Billy Joel this year. That's what I've noticed. Only two other things I didn't mention was that I like that uh, that Mike uses the pseudonym Dave Clark again when pretending to be a PI because he used that on Breaking Bad when he was trying to locate Gus's laptop when it was in a – you remember when they tried to use magnets to try to get it out of uh, the scene and the truck tipped over? So oh, really man. Fun. What a scene. And then um, I do like that Saul has the briefcase that Kim gave him with JMM on it. And he decides, oh, that's going to be my motto, justice means most. And then Lalo suggests to him, maybe it should stand for just to make money. And I would argue that Saul Goodman, by the time he gets to Breaking Bad, maybe moves from that justice means most to just make money catchphrase. Certainly. I would love to know with the JMM when they came up with these various phrases because, I mean, it really works and it feels natural. And so I think that just leaves us with predictions. It certainly does. So am I going first or do you want to go first? I want to hear your predictions. All right. So there have been a lot of discussions like Kim is to Breaking Bad what Ahsoka Tano is to Star Wars in that Ahsoka Tano was never a part of the main canon, never in the Skywalker movie, never in any of the prequels. But she is an important part of Clone Wars and Rebels. And she is one of the most beloved characters, probably because she is one of the few female Jedi that has ever been portrayed. So, and a lot of a lot of theories surrounding Ahsoka Tano were that she has to die. She has to die because she's not in the in the Skywalker movies. So she has to die in Clone Wars. 
spoiler alert, Kevin, sorry to do this to you. She does not die in Clone Wars. In fact, she lives on and survives and is a part of Rebels. Uh, she was on the second season of The Mandalorian, and she is going to be getting her own spinoff show. I am not suggesting that Kim Wexler is going to get her own spinoff show, but what I believe is, is I believe that she will make it out of the 2003-2004 timeline. I think she is going to live. And the reason I have another reason for saying that. So there is a moment in Episode 9 when Jimmy talks about if something happened to her, he doesn't know how he could live with himself. And if something were to happen to Kim because of Lalo or Tuco or Gus or Mike, I don't see a plausible way that he could be Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad the way that we see him. There's just no way. I don't think that that is possible. So I think Kim is going to make it out alive. I think what's going to happen is I think she is going to end up taking the Sandpiper money and leaving with a little bit of help from Robert fucking Forrester's character. And that is what she is, is going to happen is that she is going to be away from all of the events of Breaking Bad, but she is still going to live. Other predictions. I believe that we will get a Gene flashback at the beginning of season, season six. It is going to end on a huge cliffhanger with some sort of huge something or other about to happen. We will return to the Gene storyline at the end of episode 10, the final three episodes of Better Call Saul, since those are three additional episodes. Better Call Saul season six will be three additional episodes. We will get all of the, the whatever, 2015, 16, 2020, whatever takes place. That will be the final three episodes as kind of a coda to the Better Call Saul television show. That's all I got. Okay, so I think Gene sees Kim at the beginning of season five in the distance, and that's why he hangs up the phone. What do you think? I think there is, that is a distinct possibility. The only other real prediction I have is I think Howard gets disgraced out of law and leaves New Mexico and he gets way deep into like his meditation stuff because we don't see him at all in Breaking Bad. I don't think we see HHM at all. So I think whatever happens with Kim and Jimmy works. Howard is disgraced. HHM goes down or gets you know, renamed or something like that gets absorbed or whatever. And Howard has to flee and start a new career outside of law. Do you think Lalo and Nacho survive? I definitely think Nacho's a goner. I'm not as convinced of Lalo. I think there is a plausible scenario where he escapes to Mexico and is resourceful enough to get out of it. I also think there is a, there is a scenario where I think he dies, but Nacho, I think definitively is going to get killed. The thing that makes that tricky is there's that moment where Walter and Jesse kidnap him and he says, oh, did Ignacio or Lalo send you? So if they die, Saul doesn't know about it or they don't die. And so that makes it a little harder to predict. Yeah. But but I also think like you're probably right that at least Nacho dies. I could see Lalo dying, too. Um, But I don't have like super firm yeses or nos on either of them. But I will say. I do. I, I am in full agreement that I do not think Kim Wexler dies in season six. So you don't think she dies at all? Well, you know, well, she can't because 
she has to be in the the gene stuff. Now, does she die during the gene stuff? I guess that's right. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, I I think we're in agreement that Kim is not going to die. I'll say this: if I were to put a percentage on it, I think there is a sixty percent. No, I'll say seventy percent chance that she lives at the end of season six. She is alive. I think there is a seventy percent chance. I think they don't want. Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad to have symmetrical endings and Breaking Bad ends with Walter dying, which is in a weird way, a happy ending for Walter White. And I think they want to have Saul have a happy ending, too, or Gene or whoever. And I think for him, that might be reuniting with Kim, whether it's they change their names, they go off somewhere else again. Maybe that's it. But Breaking Bad ends with a death. I don't think they want Better Call Saul to end with a death either. So do you think there's a possibility that Jimmy may have to rescue Kim? And there's a firefight or something like that? Yes. I think you're going to have to see Gene, more or less, his version of Breaking Bad or going back into some of his Saul ways in order to maybe save Kim would be a, would be a really cool way to go. Now, I'm curious to know, are they going to do all the Gene stuff? I mean, because even if it's not the last three episodes, I think we could at least agree there has to be a certain amount of of the final three, two to three episodes that are going to be Gene stuff. I wonder if they're going to do all of that in black and white or if they're going to go to color. I think that's going to happen. I think there's going to be a transition into color for Gene at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think you almost have to do that. But yeah, I mean, we know that Gus survives. (laughs) We know that Mike, quote unquote, survives. I guess the only thing is, are we going to see Walt and Jesse in season six? My inclination is to say no. Yes, I agree. I think you might get a fun cameo where like him and like, I don't know, Skylar in the same store or like, you know, Kim sees Skylar at like a grocery store or something and they like bump into each other. You know what I mean? Like you might get a cute thing like that, but I do not think Walter Jesse will return in season six. Like the clerk's cartoon where you like have somebody wave in the background or something. You're like, just do something really goofy and dumb. Like Walter White is just like in the background of a shot and like you can barely see him and he's doing something goofy. Yeah, that'd be pretty fun. Like, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I just I would prefer not to see them on the final season. I mean, we already saw we've seen Jesse in El Camino. We saw the Walter White cameo in that movie. That is more than satisfactory to me. Uh, Yeah, I, I would not be upset if we didn't see her or anybody else in that. Because this is this is a, their story. This is this is Saul Goodman's story. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I feel like they've given us enough, uh, especially like with with Gomez and Hank here. I feel like we've we've had enough of Breaking Bad crossover. And like Better Call Saul is like its own thing now, and that's great. Yeah, and I mean the fact that Gus was in almost every episode of season five. I mean, I think that's a really huge deal too. Absolutely. I mean, the real question is, does Hugh will survive? Well, I mean, gosh, he's in that room, right? Yeah, he finally escaped, though. True, true. What if Huel comes back for revenge? What if? What if he did? Now, that's the (laughs) spinoff. But yeah, I mean, basically, we don't know when we're coming back to do the final episode. I mean, that's that's the amazing thing is that this is this is the final episode for now. But we are probably coming back in like 2022 to do season six. So I guess that we're just going to what, you know, twiddle our thumbs till then. Correct. No, Kevin. So we've got an interesting thing going in that we both watched Veronica Mars. 
the first three seasons. Uh, then Kevin did not see season four, but I had seen it, so we reviewed that. This entire year, all of 2020, all we've been doing is talking about a show that Kevin has watched. Two shows and a movie. Well, not the movie, but two shows. And Kevin has gotten to lord his knowledge over me. Kevin, in the year 2021, we're going we're gonna to reverse the roles. And I am going to lord my knowledge of a show over you as we are going to be reviewing a show that you probably haven't seen, but it is streaming on Netflix. We are staying in the AMC family. Some of the same producers from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul were also producers on the show that we are going to be discussing, and that show is Halt and Catch Fire. I'm very excited to watch this. This is something I definitely had seen ads for, and I was like, that looks interesting, but just never took that additional step to watching it. So I'm glad this has been assigned to me. It's something that I, I probably wouldn't have made the time for now had you not reminded me of it. So I'm glad we're going to take the time to do this. So uh, we, we will definitely come back for Better Call Saul Season 6 whenever it does air. We will we will complete Real Bad here on the Real World Podcasting Network. But in the meantime, starting in February 2021, we will be covering Hall and Catch Fire once again one season a month until that's a finished project. And the nice thing is, is that we have four seasons, 10 episodes apiece, and all the episodes are like 42 to 47 minutes. So this will be a very easy watch. Yeah, sometimes you turn to Better Call Saul and like, I love the show, but sometimes I'm like, I'm not in the mood for a 60-minute episode right now. <laughs> I'm just not. Yeah, the Better Call Saul season five episode counts were pretty high. They uh, they they played fast and loose some of those times. And, you know, what is AMC going to do? Say no? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what else do they have going on? Are they going to air Elf for the 150th time? I know, right? Well, I mean, that's in February we're starting this, but you and I, we may not be podcasting together in January, but both of us are, are going to have stuff coming in January, as I will be back with Brad Groon and Justin Houston for a brand new episode of Flooping the Pig. We will be talking the Adventure Time Distant Lands episodes, Obsidian, and we will also be covering the first season of Bravest Warriors, which was another Pendleton Ward cartoon. So we're going to be talking those two things coming sometime in mid-January. Very excited for Food Being the Pig to return after a couple months hiatus. I've, uh, I've, heard, I've heard some very important things happen on that uh, Adventure Time special. Yeah, hopefully a lot more important than the first one, which was meh. But characters involved in this one make me very, very excited. So looking forward to talking about those two things come mid-January with Brad and Justin. Jerome, what do you have in store for us? Uh, so definitely January? definitely make sure you are you listen to Superhero Pantheon. We are coming back for an end-of-the-year special. We discuss uh, Watchmen 2019 as well as Wonder Woman 1984, the only big superhero movie of the year. Well, I guess Birds of Prey, but I mean it's – different there's also new mutants which we won't talk about for a couple months the month of january we will be discussing uh we're going to be doing so this is brian's idea we're going to be doing tournament month uh we are going to be discussing uh a bruce lee movie enter the dragon we will also be discussing the 1995 mortal Kombat, which i don't know about you kevin but that is uh that is a guilty pleasure of mine i'm not going to sit here and tell you that mortal Kombat is good but I'm going to tell you that I probably watched it a hundred times. I mean, if like you, you, you talked about enter the dragon and then followed it up with mortal Kombat. Like there is some special circle of hell for movie viewership like that. I'm certain of it. Uh, I forget the other two movies that we're doing, but again, this is Brian's brainchild. So uh, send your compliments to him or, or complaints. 
I'm not going to complain. I mean, it's tournament month. They're tournaments. Oh, and we're also uh, we are also reviewing uh, the Jean Claude Van Damme movie that I cannot remember right now. Bloodsport. Bloodsport. Come on, it's got to be Bloodsport. Donald that... Trump's favorite movie. <laughs> oh God, is it really? It is. That's very unfortunate. Uh, that sounds like a ripe for a for a Karate Kid Cobra Kai thing going on that month. Brian is not really a fan of Karate Kid, so I, uh, we are not doing Karate Kid. Interesting. Okay. We're doing we're doing the Quick and the Dead instead. The Quick and the Dead, which is a fascinating movie, it is a western directed by Sam Raimi, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Sharon Stone, and Gene Hackman. So that's what we have going on in the month of January here at Enter the Real World. Check out all the other great stuff going up. Jerome covered his 100 favorite movies, both in uh, oral and written fashion, so you can go check all that stuff out. And as for me, I have my Lost podcast, our Veronica Mars podcast, my Adventure Time podcast, all that's there in the archives. Plenty of audio and stuff for you to check out. I'm on Twitter at K413. He's on Twitter at Jerome C. Cusan. We are well out of time. Thank you very much for listening to this extra long episode of Real Bad. Hopefully it tied you over till a year or so from now when we come back to you to cover the end of the show. Thanks for listening, and you better call Saul. Hey, Kevin. Yes. I have an idea. 